This is Skywave Audio Theater. I'm Norman Gilliland. John Daner went into art after studying at the Grand Central School of Art in New York. At the age of 25, he worked as an animator for Walt Disney. He worked on Fantasia at the Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, and he also worked on another Disney classic, Bambi, a far cry from what he would soon be known for. During the next 45 years, Daner appeared in at least 126 feature films, and his radio and TV roles were, well, too many to count. Before he became paladin on radio, Daner was the frontier gentleman, working with a lot of the actors who would be regulars on Have Gun, Will Travel. Among them in this final episode of Frontier Gentleman is Ben Wright, playing a Chinese, and uh, he would famously play a Chinese hey boy in Have Gun, Will Travel just the following year. These are random notes from the Frontier Gentleman. John Daner as J.B. Kendall in a broadcast from November 19, 1958. It occurs to me that in this, my last report to the London Times, there are many incidents which I have omitted, things seen and heard during these several months of my journeys through the American West. Here, then, some random notes. Frontier Gentlemen. with an Englishman's account of life and death in the West. As a reporter for the London Times, he writes his colorful and unusual stories. But as a man with a gun, he lives and becomes a part of the violent years in the New Territories. Now, starring John Daner, this is the story of J.B. Kendall, Frontier Gentleman. These notes are being written as I journey by train to New York. From there, I shall board a ship for England and home. I recall in the Montana Territory town of Helena, a tall gentleman in high hat, black broadcloth frock coat, a dirty shirt with a torn paper collar, and the most singularly unpressed pair of nankeen trousers. He stood outside a saloon with a small case of bottles set before him, about a dozen men and women were crowded around, and a small yellow dog slumbered at his feet. Yes, sir, yes, lady, it's here. Here in this little bottle. Magic, you ask? No, say I, not magic. Pollock's original Mameluke liniment, a sovereign remedy for man and beast. It is confidently recommended to the afflicted as an infallible remedy for the following diseases. To wit, burns, cramps, pains in the joints, sore throat, frosted feet, Rheumatism, spinal complaints, lumbago, old sores, cuts, bruises, swellings, sprains, pains in the back or sides, headache, cutaneous affections, ague cake, bites of insects or reptiles, salt room, mange, cracked hands, tetter, dysentery, cholera morbus, and cholera. What about the heaves, mister? Oh, the heaves you are, sir. And in this bottle, the answer to your question, sir, Pollock syrup of sassafras, or cure, 
nature's noblest remedy for heaves, consumption bronchitis, group or hives, colds, coughs, asthma, hoarseness, difficulty of breathing, purifying the blood, whooping cough, and a dozen ailments too horrible to mention. Ladies and gentlemen, it costs only 25 cents for one bottle, or as an added inducement for your health, ladies and gentlemen, Pollock's original Mameluke liniment and a bottle of Pollock's syrup of sassafras, both for the small sum of 40 cents. Think of the dollars and suffering you will save by this miraculous I remember the duel fought between two ladies, rivals for the dubious hand of a swaggering young Lothario named Court Thompson. The entire town turned out for the event. The duelists were Matty Silks and Katie Fulton. They were to fire at ten paces, and all was in readiness. Well, sir, if you ask me, my money's on Matty. Matty? Why, sure, everybody knows Matty Silks. You mean you ain't visited? No. I got ten dollars says she'll blow Katie Fulton's bustle clean out of the county. Aside from Court Thompson, Matty ain't standing for Katie's bar being on the same street. There's real bad feeling there. Well, which is Court Thompson? Feller standing next to Matty. Oh, he's a one. He is. Uh, you got to excuse me now, mister. I've been selected to count off the steps. All right, folks. Stay back. Let's get on this here duel of honor. Matty, Katie, you know the rules. Ten paces and I count three and you start shooting. Let's go. One, two, three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ready, ladies? One, two, three. You killed me! I'm shot! It was Katie Fulton's shot that missed Matty Silks and hit Court Thompson. Some said she'd done it purposely, others argued that it was an accident. At any rate, Matty took the wounded Don Juan home, and as far as I know, their love burgeoned from that moment on. I shall continue these notes after the next stop, which is Chicago. remember an old man, a miner I met in Fort Benton. His name was Shorthorn Tom. On our journey to locate his lost mine, he gave me an insight into Western speech, which I have found to be most valuable. He was leading a balky mule along a winding trail, and the air was blue with invective. <coughs> oh, it ain't really cussing. Just sort of air in your lungs. Now, you take that mule. I call him a son of a gun. Now, that ain't rightly so, because anybody can see he ain't nothing but a son of a mule. <laughs> but he's a no good son of a gun, because that's the way it goes, see? Uh, yes, yes, I, I follow you. Now, speaking of that, what exactly is son of a gun stew? Son of a gun stew? Yes. Shucks, I'll tell you. <laughs> that's just about the best thing a man ever put in his insides. It's got brains and sweet breads. Well, gotta be a fresh-killed calf, gotta be. 
and tongue, liver, lights, heart, kidney. Oh, I tell you, mister, that is a something. <laughs> That's better than pooch any day. Yes, sir, when I find this claim, I'm going to get me a set of store-bought teeth. And I'll show you how to make a son of a gun stew. <laughs> you can throw everything in except the hair, horns, and holler. <laughs> That's a real grub. Yes, uh, sounds... <laughs> Tell me, what's hardtail? Oh, it's just a mule. Like this ornery stump-sucking son of a gun. A hardtail mule. Cheer it. Stump-sucker? Ah, ain't you never seen a horse getting his teeth against something and sucking wind? That's what a stump-sucker is. Ah, oh, you don't want nothing to do with a critter like that. <coughs> no, sir. No. I've heard the expression, riding herd on a woman. Oh, that's courting, riding herds, courting. <laughs> Boy, you stick around old Shorthorn Tom, he'll have you talking smart as a bunkhouse rat. Gee, you know what we call a fella like you, green from the east? Tenderfoot, button, dude, prune picker, pilgrim, softhorn, greener. <laughs> what about you? Me? What's a rawhide, coffee cooler, pocket hunter, river sniper. Of course, fellas call me a lot of other things, too. <laughs> it don't really matter what they call you, it's what you are that counts. I take you for a good partner, mister. Real good. Shorthorn Tom never did find his lost mine. He died up in the Highwood Mountains. I was with him. Then there was the performance of Othello that I witnessed in Kansas, the Frontier Theatrical Players. Othello was a fine, powerful fellow with a broad Texas accent, a cowhand, recruited by the wife of a ranch owner. Needless to say, the wife played Desdemona. Unfortunately, Othello had a scant three days in which to memorize his part. The resultant scene I report verbatim. And that handkerchief which I give, give to you, I give it to Cassio. No, by my life and soul, send for the man and ask him. No, I don't want no sweet talk, honey. Y'all take heed of perjury, cause you aren't on thy deathbed. I, but not yet to die. Yeah. So you confess freely about all that sinning. For, for... For to deny... For to deny each article with oath cannot remove or choke. Uh, something, something that I do grunt. Honey, y'all gonna die. Mercy. Amen. And have you mercy, too. I never did offend you in my life. Never loved Cassio, but with such general warranty of heaven as I might yeah, love, I look, never give him I token. Saw, I saw, you know, the handkerchief, everything, I saw he, it. Uh, he found it, then. I never gave it him. Send for him hither. Let well, him... he confessed. What, my lord? Well, you know, he... Uh, he been dealing off he of the bottom. He will not say so. He won't for a fact. Honest Iago stopped his mouth. Oh, my fear interprets. What is he, dead? Had all of his hair been lives, my great revenge had stomach for all of us. Alas, he is betrayed and I undone. Out's trumpet. Weeps thou for him in my face? Oh, banish me, my lord, but not kill me. Out's trumpet. Kill me tomorrow, let me live tonight. No, sir. But half an hour. Being done, there is no pause. But while I say one prayer. It's pray. too late. You take your hands off that food, son, and I'll come up there and rip my hide off. (laughs) 
The player's conclusion had deviated somewhat from Shakespeare's intent, but I found it nonetheless dramatic. I've often wondered whether the Texas Othello continued his thespian career. He could have made a fortune in London. Uh, speaking of fortunes reminds me of an extraordinary thing that happened in Montana Territory. I shall note it down after dinner. There's a new dimension in motoring today. It's the lock by Tudor Baker coming your way. Smart, sensible, spirited too. The perfect family car for you. The lock by Tudor Baker. See it today. Now at last, a U.S. car that's sized just right for the needs and tastes of the times. It's the Lark by Studebaker, your new dimension in motoring. The Lark gives you big car spaciousness on the inside, it's seat six, and small car convenience on the outside. It's nearly three feet shorter than conventional cars. Smartly styled, beautifully engineered, the Lark looks better and drives better than many expensive cars, yet costs less to buy, far less to operate. It's your new dimension in motoring today. It's the Lark by Studebaker. See it today. The Lark. I mention an event in Montana Territory, but it happened to a Chinese gentleman named Li Chang. He was a well-educated man, scrupulously honest, and ran a general supply store in Helena. During the few days of my visit, I had enjoyed several cups of tea and one or two chess games with him. I remember that one afternoon, he seemed quite excited. His hand shook as he poured the tea. This is a momentous day for me, my friend Kendall. Oh? You are the first to know. I am a mine owner. No. Look, a legal document which gives me possession of the lucky hand plus a claim. I have paid for it with my life's earnings, $40,000. You know that uh, some men have been bringing me their gold dust to keep for them, as in a bank? Yes, I remember you telling me. Uh, it was their claim that I bought. Uh, it took much time, much trade talk, but finally they agreed to sell. Now I am a mine owner. As soon as I have made my fortune, Kendall, I shall return to China and live the remainder of my life in peace and security. Li Chao was evidently the last or next to last man in Helena to find out what had happened. I heard it three days later from the barber who was shaving me. Hey, mister, it's the biggest joke in Helena since old man Hornaday strung up that mule for kicking his wife. You mean you ain't heard? No. Yeah, a Chinese gent along the street, Lee Chow, bought himself a mine. Yes, I know. You know it's salted? Salted? He's paid 40000 for a salted mine. What the boy's done was to take him a bag of gold dust every day to hole for him. Lee figures they got a whopper claim. He wants to buy in partners. No, sir, says they. And then when Lee's prime real good. The boys figure is how they done enough work, they're ready to sell out. Lee Chow buys for $40,000, the fellas take your dust, and vamoose leaving Lee Chow with a deed to a vegetable farm. That's all it's good for. 
Does he know yet? If he don't, he's the only man in hell that ain't. Well, what about the men who sold the claim to him? Well, last I heard, they was headed for California. Ah, uh, good morning, my friend Kendall. Good morning, Mr. Lee. You appear downcast. Is something the matter? Well, I've just heard some rather bad news. It's, it's about your claim. Oh? You've been cheated, Mr. Lee. There's no gold. The men who sold it to you knew it. So? But I, I do not understand. Yesterday, my boys who are working for me, they bring me a sack of dust. Here, see for yourself. It is the same as I have seen before. Your workers took this out of the claim? It is just as it has always been. I, I, I don't understand this talk of cheating. <laughs> Neither do I, Mr. Lee. Yeah, ah, here is my friend, Ji Ping. He very fine miner working for me. Good morning, Ji. Good morning, Lee. Good morning, honored sir. Good morning. My, my friend here, Kendo, he's worried about the claim. You worried? Why? There is talk of uh, salting the mine. Then salt is of gold. Here, from work of yesterday. One ounce more than first day. Ah, uh, I do not know from where you hear this bad news, my friend Kendo. But if the rest of my life is as unfortunate, I shall indeed be a rich and happy man. Will you take a cup of tea with me? Perhaps a game of chess? A day or so later, I left Helena and didn't return for about three weeks. Then it was only to spend an hour or so arranging for transportation to Fort Benton. I went to the store of Mr. Lee Chow and found to my surprise that it was closed. I walked to the barber shop and over a hair trimming learned what had happened during my absence. Lee Chow, Mr. Yu whispered that name around these parts. Say, ain't I seen you before? Yes, I came in for a shave a few weeks ago. Yeah, never forget a face. Well, what about Lee Chow? Gone. China, they say. Well, what happened? Sold that claim of his. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, maybe you are, but there's a passel of fellas around here who ain't. You know what that son of a gun did? What? Salted his mines. So, ain't that what? something? Everybody figuring Lee Chow an honest man, and he salts a mine. Shows you. Well, how? I mean, I thought the claim had turned out to be good. What do you, what do you call it, a bonanza? Yeah, that's what everybody thought. You know what he was doing? Every day he had one of his coolies bring in a sack of dust, made sure people saw it. After a while, fellas begun figuring that Lee really had struck pay dirt. Couple of them went into Lee's place, showed him a sack of dust. He showed it to me. Sure he did. And he had one other sack. That's all he had. When he kept in the store, the other he'd give back oh, to the coolie and bring it in the next day. <laughs> and ain't nothing to laugh at, mister. You know what he done? <laughs> no, I haven't any, any Sold idea. Sold that worthless bit of ground for 100000 <laughs> Yes, sir, 100000 then skips off to China. <laughs> <laughs> Biggest swindle I've ever seen in the territory. <laughs> Fellas who bought it found out the next day. They I have thought of the outlaw, Dick Gillis, and the interview I had with him in Virginia City. He had been convicted of holding up the stage and the murder of two men. We talked in his cell, the marshal sitting outside at his desk, keeping a watchful eye on us. Gillis was quite proud to be the subject of an English newspaperman's report. Perhaps he colored his life for that reason. I'll never be quite sure. I'm 36. 36 years out of a mother's arms I never knew. She went up Salt River when I was born, Javi. My pa... He were a wicked old so-and-so, used to beat the tar out of me. I run away from home when I was 10. Where did you go? Nebraska, Kansas, Colorado. I've been all over. 
I seen more than most men see in five lifetimes, less than I wish I had. What made you start just being an outlaw? Man doesn't start, mister. Shucks, I was born outlaw. Did my first killing when I was ten. Shot me my pa's horse. That's how come I run away. Well, why did you shoot his horse? I don't know. Because I guess the old varmint cared more for horse flesh than for his own son, maybe. I sure hated that critter. If I hadn't killed the horse, I'd have killed the old man. Now, that's for sure. How many men have you killed? In fair fight, two. No matter telling it now, because I'm going to hang anyway. Seven. Seven I killed in hate, for killing's sake. Do you have a girl? I got a wife. Ain't seen her for three years now. There's a kid, too. But I never did go back. I guess is how they'll manage along. You know, a man like me oughtn't take up with a wife and her kids. There's something all fired wrong. Wrong? Fella like me, I know I done bad. I know I'm going to hang. There ain't no one going to sorrow. Kind of wish that weren't so. What do you think? I know what you mean. If I had me a 44, I'd shoot my way out of here and I'd head for the hills and live, you know? Funny how quick a man forgets the smell of grass and sage. I should have been one of them poet fellas. I, I knew Jack Crawford once. You ever meet up with him? No. I'd like to ask you a favor, mister. What is it? You write what I'm telling you in that English paper of yours. You say maybe somebody sorrowed when I got my neck broke, huh? Make it up maybe like my wife or kid heard and they sorrowed. I will. Day comes when man gets to be alone. Ain't nothing more to look at except what's inside. <laughs> I sure hadn't ought to kill that horse, you know? These are some of the things which I've seen, heard during my travels. I find myself despondent at the thought of leaving this country and its people, yet my sadness is tempered with the realization that perhaps someday I shall come back to the great American West, which for the past several months has been my home. tablets in the little green pocket row just waiting for the moment when you need them to bring your acid indigestion under control tums are the little white tablets in the little green pocket row tums for the tummy t-u-m-s bring relief quicker than you'd ever guess best for any kind of acid distress keep them handy in the pocket row keep your tummy under tums control tums are fast effective and safe tums relieve the discomfort of acid indigestion quickly with no danger of acid rebound sometimes caused by harsh alkalizers Always carry Tums, 10 cents. Three-roll pack, a quarter. New six-roll pack with free metal carrier, 49 cents. Frontier Gentlemen was written, produced, and directed by Anthony Ellis and stars John Daner as J.B. Kendall. 
featured in the cast were Ben Wright, Virginia Gregg, Lawrence Dobkin, Joseph Kearns, Vic Perrin, Jack Crucian, Jack Moyles, and Harry Bartell. Bud Sewell speaking. CBS Caution Before Speed. This is the CBS Radio Network. John Daner as J.B. Kendall, Frontier Gentleman. That was the final episode. Random Notes from November 19th, 1958. That was just four days before Daner would be back as Paladin in the debut episode of Have Gun, Will Travel. Waiting in the wings is Fibra McGee and Molly, and this is Skywave Audio Theater. Johnson's wax was so identified with Fibber McGee and Molly for so many years that uh, Fibber referred to spokesman Harlow Wilcox as Waxy. And when the characters went on a road trip, well, Waxy came along in the back seat of the car to uh, slip in the commercials, which he uh, sometimes did in so cleverly a way that Fibber uh, did the audio equivalent of rolling his eyes. And Fibber McGee and Molly are never far from uh, their vaudeville beginnings. As you'll hear in tonight's episode, uh, you can't do this just everywhere today, but uh, take a ride on a streetcar to get things started in this broadcast from November 15, 1949 of Fibber McGee and Molly. The Johnson's Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat present Fibber McGee and Molly with Bill Thompson, Arthur Q. Bryan, Dick Legrand, Cliff Arquette, and me, Harlow Wilcox. The script is by Don Quinn and Phil Leslie. Music by the Kingsman and Billy Mills Orchestra. Again tonight, we bring you great news about the most important development in floor care in the past 15 years. Johnson's new glow coat is now positively water repellent. That means that it'll last. There is a self-polishing floor wax that does not streak, does not leave drab spots behind when you wipe up spill things. Dishwater, ice cubes, spill drinks can be whisked away, leaving your floor still shining. You don't wipe off the floor wax when you wipe up the water. Now, as you know, glow coat is easy to apply because it produces its own luster. There's no polishing. It's easy to keep clean because dirt, dust, and grime don't grind into that tough glow coat film. But most important, new glow coat is water repellent. And only in glow coat can you get this wonderful water repellent quality. It stays on, stays bright, even after repeated damp mopping. That saves you money as well as work. Tomorrow, give your floors new beauty and protection 
Give yourself new freedom from floor care drudgery. Get Johnson's new water repellent, Glow Coat. It's at your dealers now in the same familiar Glow Coat package. Wherever Mr. McGee of 79 Wistful Vista goes, he likes to go first class. If it's the theater, his seat has to be down front. If it's the fights, he likes to sit ringside. At the opera, nothing but a box. So we find him now with Mrs. McGee in a pair of fourth row seats on the aisle, going downtown on the streetcar. As we join Fibber McGee and Molly. Oh, you didn't have to ride downtown with me, McGee. I'm glad to have you, but I'm only going to the bomb town. And oh, well, that's okay, Molly. I had a good reason for coming. Talk coming. Talk about Rick next. Connection with me with Pops. <laughs> what were you saying, dearie? I said I had a good reason for coming downtown today, kiddo. You remember last night I and Mort Toops went bowling? Do I remember? Who was it found your bowling shoes for you? All neatly wrapped and stored away in the deep freeze. <laughs> That's right, you did. Hey, how'd you happen to think of looking in the freezer for those shoes, anyhow? Well, it was quite logical. The minute I found the pot roast you bought and the shoe bag on your closet door, <laughs> finding your shoes in the deep freeze was a simple deduction. <laughs> ah, very sharp, kiddo, very sharp. But the reason I come downtown was, after bowling, Mort flipped a half a dollar to see which one of us would buy the hot buttered root beers you see at Kramer's Drugstore. And the coin fell on the sidewalk and rolled into the sidewalk grating. Oh, dear. And it was too dark last night to look for it last night, and I know just what grating it rolled under, so finders are keepers, and I'm the guy... Next stop, call for Lazimert. Call for Lazimert next. Change for Nerf. Well, that's our stop, dearie. 14th Street. (laughs) Well, it's like I say, a half a buck is a half a buck. And if Mort Toops is that careless with his gold, come on. Call for Lazimer. Call out for Gopher Lazimer. Nerf car. Let him out, please. My, this is an awfully high step, McGee. Maybe you better give me your hand because... Oh, I'm okay. I can make it all right. Oh, come on, kiddo. Let's hurry. My hero. Now, let me see. Now, the grating I'm looking for is the second one down from the mailbox. Let's go over there quickly. Oh, oh. Look. What is it? Oh, it's the old-timer, isn't it? Yeah, and standing right smack dab on my grating, too. My gosh, if he's already out, if he's already found that half... Oh, oh, hi, old-timer. Hello, Mr. Old-timer. Hello there, daughter. Hi, Johnny. Hey, you kids seen Bessie? No, no, we haven't, Mr. Old-timer. Are you looking for her? Got a date to meet her here, daughter. We're going out to the ballpark. Ballpark? There's no ball game this afternoon. Well, that's okay, Johnny. We hate crowds anyhow. (laughs) Me and Bessie, we like to be alone. <laughs> you do, huh? Alone. Yep, but somehow we always wind up with each other. <laughs> She's a fine kid, though, and at my age, a fella can't be too... Hey, uh, look, isn't that Bessie now, old-timer, coming across the street there? Yep, that's her. That's my Bessie. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't she cute? <laughs> Just look at her daughter, smiling and jabbering all by herself and happy as a flea on a fat dog. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she seems like a very nice uh, uh, girl, uh, Mr. Oldtimer. Hey, she sweet. Did you ever see such feet? She walks like she was pulling the plow, but ain't she? Hey, hey, Bessie! Here I am, O.T., am I, little? 
baby. I'm used to waiting. Well, the reason I'm late, O.T., I stopped by the beauty parlor to get prettied up. <laughs> it, uh, it took more time than I thought. <laughs> Must have took more time than you had, baby. <laughs> you keep crying, though. That's one thing I like about Bessie Kidd. She never gives up. Oh, uh, excuse me. You remember Mr. and Mrs. McGee, Bessie? Why, of course. Hello, Bessie. Hi, Bess. Oh, I'm so glad to see you all again. I'm a southern girl, you know. That's why I say you all. In fact, I'm a direct descendant of a 33rd cousin of some very close friends of General Lee. My goodness, General Lee. You know, I believe I can see a little resemblance to that. Uh, yep, the general had a heavier beard, of course. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. Bessie's not McGee. a... McGee! <laughs> now, look, Mr. Oldtimer, if you're in a hurry to go... No what... hurry, daughter, no hurry. You know, Bessie had a fine job down there at one time. She was a member of the Peanut Pickers Union. Peanut Pickers Union? Goober Local 402. <laughs> but when they raised my dues, I seceded from the union. Well, like I always says, Bessie, nothing secedes like secess. <laughs> <laughs> don't you get it, kids? I simply said nothing. Ain't funny, McGee. <laughs> I don't understand it myself, but oh! <laughs> Seeds like <laughs> Oh, that's good, Johnny. <laughs> but that ain't the way I heard it. When I heard it, one fella says to tell the fella, say, friend of mine's got a new baby this week. Got red hair from head to foot. Is that so? says tell the fella. What did the mother say when she seen him? The mother, says the first fella. She just said, Moo, she's a cow too. <laughs> Bessie, so long, kids. I'll tell you all. <laughs> My gosh, am I glad to get that guy off this grating. I thought he was going to stand here all day. Well, have you spotted the half a dollar yet? Is it down there? With the old-timer's big feet planted there, I couldn't even see the grating. Much less a half a buck. Uh-oh, I see it. There it is. Well, hooray. You know, I'm glad that isn't a $20 bill because if you get this excited over a half a dollar, I... watch your trousers now, McGee. Don't tear the knees. Don't you worry, Tootsie. I should have brought along a stick with some chewing gum on it with me. Chewing gum. <laughs> Old chewing gum. Sticky. This grating is kind of tight, but I think I can get my hand on it. Ah, I got it. Success. Good. Now hop up and dust off your trousers. People are looking at you like... Uh, What's the matter? My hand, it's... It's, it's stuck. Stuck in the grating, Molly. Oh. I, uh, I'm caught. Trapped like a rat. Oh, heavenly days. Can't you work it I out, dear? Can't, can't get my hand out. Oh. Uh, help. I'm trapped like a rat. Going out the orchestra. Ain't she sweet?
But it's darn embarrassing I feel like I'd got caught with my hand in the poor box at church or something Hey, mister, the same thing happened to my brother once in Passaic, New Jersey Yeah? Yeah, got his hand caught in a grating way back in 1928 mm. His right hand, too Well, how did he get out of it? He never did We built a little shack around him and he runs a newsstand with his left hand <laughs> That's very funny, bud, very funny I'll go home and write some gags for the Undertaker's Journal. Oh, my knees. Hey, Molly, put my top coat under my knees, will you? That's it. Tuck it under a little more. All right. That's better. I'm glad you're more comfortable, dearie, but after all, we'll have to get you out of this predicament. If you could only hold your hand over your head to reduce the swelling. Yeah, that's a great idea, but my head isn't swelling. I didn't have to hold up 40 foot of sidewalk, though I might do it. Hey, why don't somebody do something? Call the fire department. Call, Call the fire department, he says. Maybe if they turn the hose on him, his hand will shrink. <laughs> oh, be quiet. Has anybody in the crowd got a hacksaw? No, lady, but I got a jackknife if you want to cut his arm off. <laughs> well, a lot of help we're going to get out of this bunch of comedians. You see why I'm so gregarious, Molly? You see why I hate people so much? Everybody said, oh, am I ever uncomfortable. Maybe I if you'd let go of the half a dollar, you could get your hand out. I can't let go of it. My hand's all cramped up around it. My gosh, isn't there something? Thank you, thank you. One time, please, folks. That's it, thank you. Hey, pal, what's the matter? Oh, hello, Mr. Wilcox. Nothing's the matter, Junior, nothing at all. My manicurist is kind of bashful, so she hides under the sidewalk to give me a manicure. <laughs> well, you better tell her to hurry up. It looks a little like rain. Rain, oh, that's all we need. Did you hear that, McGee? Yeah. Mr. Wilcox says it looks like rain. Yeah, leave it to Junior to add the cheerful note. Well, what's so bad about rain, pal? Gee whiz, even housewives don't <laughs> dread rain anymore. Uh, now the Johnsons have come out with their revolutionary new water-repellent glow coat. Water-repellent glow coat. Here I am with my mitt stuck in a sidewalk grating, humiliated and embarrassed, and he goes right on making a living. <laughs> of all the calories... Mister, what's water-repellent glow coat? Yeah, what are you talking about? Oh, oh, oh baby, this is wonderful. What an opportunity. Oh. All right, step a little closer, folks, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you all about the greatest sensation in floor protection since the invention of the rubber heel. Hey, quit crowding me. Now, look out. Get off of my back. Give this man room, please. You're trampling over my husband. Not so close. Not so close, please, friends. Friends, he says. There's no, they're nothing but a mob of Mormon maroons. <laughs> Now then, here's the most important news in floor care in 15 years. Johnson's uh, new water repellent. Wait a minute, Mr. Repellent. Wilcox. Uh-huh. Let me tell this. You're so long-winded when you get talking about glow coat, and I want to get himself out of that grating there. Yeah, Molly, but... Can you hold on a minute, dearie? What do you mean, can I hold on? Well, where would I be going? But make it snappy, Tootsie. I will, sweetheart. Folks, I am a housewife. Hooray! 
Molly, tell them about the uh, way Be you... quiet now, Mr. Wilcox. Right. This is the voice of the ultimate consumer. Folks, I am a housewife. Hooray! I have always used Johnson's self-polishing glow coat on my floor. I didn't think it could be improved, but it has been. You bet. Because now we have Johnson's new water-repellent glow coat. That's it, Molly, that's it. That means when you spill water, like dishwater or something... Your linoleum won't get all drab and gray looking. Hey, and don't don't forget you that you don't have to... You just wipe off the don't. water with a cloth or a damp mop. And there's your wax shining good as new. It will save you money, too, because this new glow coat stays bright after all kinds of damp mopping. That's the stuff, Molly. You don't have to re-wax every time you want to get your floor nice looking. So go and get some right now and see for yourself. <laughs> Look at him go. My gosh, look at him run. Hey, you're quite a saleswoman, Molly. I bet you never got such quick action with a sales talk, Mr. Wilcox. Well, I usually have more hope. Hey, it's raining. Hey, let me out of here. Get help. I'll drown like a rat here. Do something, somebody. Get I'll, I'll do something, pal. Good for you, Mr. Wilcox. What are you going to do? I'm going to hurry back to the office. When all those people realize it's raining, we'll be swamped with orders for the new water-repellent glow <laughs> I hope you get out all right, pal. <laughs> guy can stop calling me pal as of this minute. He's the kind of a friend that if he get caught in a bear trap, he'd run home for a skinning knife. Hey, Molly. Molly, has it stopped raining? No, dearie. I'm holding my umbrella over you. Oh, well, much obliged. Anyway, this rain ain't a total disaster. I got rid of that mob. Oh, how do I always get into these things? Well, now that we have a few minutes peace and quiet, McGee, let's figure out how to get you out of this one. Now, if I help you pull, can we lift the whole grating out? I don't know. Let's try. Start lifting. One, two, three. Oh, I think it moved a little, McGee. Did you hear it creak? Yeah, but that wasn't the grating. <laughs> that was my wrist bones. From now on, I'm going to have to have my right sleeves made three inches longer than the left. I pulled so hard, I got... Well, well, that goes on here, McGee. Hello, missus. Well, for goodness sakes, McGee, here's Ole from the Elks Club. Hi, Ole boy, and I'm glad to see you. You're a handy kind of a guy. Can you figure a way to get me out of here? Well, the good Jesus, how did you ever get in there in the first place, McGee? Or was you used coming out from someplace? Well, he was... <laughs> he was trying to retrieve a half a dollar from under the grating, Ole, and got his hand stuck. Yeah, do something, will you, Ole? I'm suffering. McGee, this is your lucky day. It just happens I get crowbar here with me. Oh. Heavenly day, so he has, McGee. Let's get to work, Ole. Yeah, can't you see I'm in misery, Ole? Oh, oh don't worry, McGee. I fix you up right away. I Fine. get crowbar right here. Good. Stood back, missus. I put him out of misery. I hit him just a little smack on the back oh. of the head. Oh! <laughs> no, no. Don't knock him out, Ole. Pry him out. Pry him out? Oh, yeah, sure. I didn't thought of that, missus. That's a good idea. Okay, McGee, I try and you lift. Ready? What do you mean, am I ready? You think I'm kneeling here reading a continued story or something? Sure, I'm ready. Get going, will you? Uh, you pull on his coattail, missus. And don't ever tell my missus I do this. Uh, why not, Ollie? Well, she's always telling me not to pry into something that's not some of my business. Now, here we go, McGee. Okay. Hot dog! It's out! I'm free again! Yes, you're free, except for a 30-pound iron grating hanging on your wrist. <laughs> what do we do now? Well, go somewhere and have it piled off, I guess. Hey, Doc Gamble will take it off. He's always getting my thumb out of bowling balls and stuff. He'll know what to do, Doc well, Gamble will. all right, but can you carry that thing that far? Maybe I'm so relieved to be standing up again I could carry it to Elkhart, Indiana. Well, thanks a lot, Ole. 
I won't forget this come Christmas. Oh, that's all right, McGee. I don't expect nothing for doing a favor for a member of Elk's Club. See, they pay me for working. From outsiders, maybe I expect something. But from members, I'm used to donating my time. So long, McGee. So long. Goodbye, Ellie. Well, come on, you poor lad. I'll help you carry that grave. Yeah, okay, let's get going. Now, let's not bang in anything. My wrist hurts. Well, come on, let's go. The Kingsmen and California Orange Blossom. I'm a native of a place where flowers always bloom. And the fragrant scenery breathes a sweet perfume. Where the mountains touch the shore, the blue Pacific flows. It's there that everybody knows. My California Orange Blossom. With her sun-kissed eyes of blue. If you long to win her, let me warn you. My California Orange Blossom. Pretty Orange Blossom. breaking my arm lugging this dead ratted sidewalk grating around. Why, this thing must weigh... Oh, dear. Dead rat's a dead rat. Every time I move, I whang this hunk of iron against something. Watch the furniture, McGee. Here, I'll open the door for you. Be careful now. Well, hello, Molly. Nice to see hello, you. Hello, Doctor. And... Oh, no, McGee. Yeah. Hi, Doc. Yeah. Let me sit down. Oh, we came right over to you, Doctor, because... <laughs> this I can't believe. <laughs> My nurse told me there was a man outside with his arm stuck through a two-foot square iron grating. <laughs> but I gave her some nerve medicine and told her to go home and get some sleep. <laughs> oh, this is rich. <laughs> Come on over here, McGee. Let me look at you. Look at me, My clavicle. <laughs> 
do something, will you, Fatso? This cast iron bracelet weighs 30 pounds at least. Relax. My arms. Relax, my boy, relax. Relax. First rule in an emergency is keep calm. Yeah, keep calm. You mustn't upset yourself. <laughs> Don't tell me how you got into this mess, because I couldn't believe it anyway. <laughs> oh, Doctor. It's not funny, a big septic. Ah, get it off, will you? Ain't you got any regard for human suffering? He is suffering, Doctor. Yes, but is he human? <laughs> All right, McGee. Hoist it up on the table here and let's have a look at it. Okay. Uh, wow. Huh. It is pretty swollen, isn't it? Yes, and red, too, Doctor. His arm hasn't been that color since he dropped his wristwatch in Uncle Dennis's elderberry crock. Well, there's only one way to get his arm out of there. Wait till I get some instruments. In in instruments? Well, what you going to do, Doc? Will, will I need an anesthetic? Ether? Solium Pentagon? Now, now the doctor won't hurt you, dearie. Mother's right here. Uh, My goodness, you're a big boy. You're no Freddy cat. I'm not? I mean, of course I'm not. You have to operate, doctor. I'm ready. I can take it. I can stand the pain. As long as it don't hurt. Ah, uh, this will do it. My favorite saw. Saw? There's only one way to get your hand out of that grating, and that's saw it off, mm. right above the wrist. Now, you hold steady, and I'll... Saw it off? Saw it off! Oh, now, McGee. Not your arm. <laughs> Not your arm, the grating. Oh. Now, you hold steady while I work on it with this hacksaw, will you? I'll saw that Take bar through. Take it easy, now. You can say Molly McGee. Take it easy. How's your arm feel by now, McGee? Huh. Circulation coming back all right? Yeah, fine, Doc, fine. Hi, gosh, Doc, I, I don't know how to thank oh, you for this. Oh, think nothing of it. You don't need to thank me at all, my boy. I don't? No, you'll get your bill in the mail. Oh. Well, come on, McGee, let's go, huh? Yeah. <sighs> What an experience. I don't know how you get into those things, McGee. Oh, I don't know. Just lucky, I guess. <laughs> Was all for nothing, too, huh? What you mean, for nothing? I still got the half a dollar, kiddo. And from now on, that's going to be my lucky half dollar. Well, it's off to a great start. But look, McGee, you can't keep that half what? a dollar. What you mean, I can't keep it? I found it and lose it. We... And you know who lost it, Mr. Toops. You gotta give it back to him, McGee. Now that's all. Yeah, but, oh, gee whiz, Molly. Don't make me give it back. After all, I went through to Back get... to Mr. Toops. No. Look, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll flip him for it. Heads or tails. That's fair enough. Heads I keep it, and tails I give it back to Mort. Here goes. Yeah. Where is it? I don't see it. Uh, went down this grating here. I'll get it. <laughs> uh oh. I'm stuck again. Oh, don't tell me. You're stuck in the grating? No, nope, I'm stuck for half a buck. It's tails. Mort wins. Well, I'll tell him where it is in the morning. <laughs> well, come on, kiddo. We've been All here right. half an hour. Come on, let's, let's go. go. Fiber and Molly return in a moment. 
It's the biggest news in years for homemakers. At last, there's a self-polishing floor wax that's positively water-repellent. It's Johnson's new glow coat. Now, here's what that means to you. New glow coat now gives you brighter floors while it saves you hours of hard work. Because it repels water, new glow coat does not lose its shine even after repeated damp moppings. Does not streak, does not leave drab spots behind when you wipe up spilled things. And that solid surface of tough, shining wax means much more besides. It means quick mopping instead of hard scrubbing. Far less wear on floors and linoleum. It means economy, too. Johnson's new glow coat stays on, stays bright. Not days, but weeks longer. Tomorrow, get the best self-polishing floor wax money can buy. The glow coat now on your dealer's shelves is Johnson's new water-repellent glow coat. Get some tomorrow. Dr. Gamble, wonderful, McGee. Yeah, he's a great kid. Always there when you need him, if you can get an appointment. You know what puzzled me? Uh, how did he happen to have a saw in his office that could cut metal? My gosh, I don't know. Let's call him up and ask him. I did. Oh, what did he say? Well, he said he got that last year when he had to operate on a steel man from Pittsburgh. <laughs> Good night. Good night, all. <laughs> The makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat, Racine, Wisconsin, and Brantford, Canada, bring you Fibber McGee and Molly each week at this time. Be with us again next Tuesday night, won't you? The fastest wax polish money can buy. That's Johnson's Cream Furniture Wax, the time-saving wax polish that keeps furniture bright and glistening almost without effort. For Johnson's Cream Wax cleans so quickly, dries so quickly, polishes so quickly that using it is almost as easy as dusting. A few strokes with a cloth do the cleaning, a few more bring out a bright, satin-smooth polish. And Johnson's Cream Wax contains no sticky oils to catch dust. Tomorrow, start using Johnson's Cream Furniture Wax. It's the fastest wax polish money can buy. There's excitement on Big Town coming to you next on NBC. Fibber McGee getting stuck for half a buck. Literally, a great opportunity for the Foley operator in that broadcast of Fibber McGee and Molly from November 15th, 1949. With Molly getting in some of the punchlines, we'll have a mystery next. A medical mystery for Dr. Kildare here on Skywave Audio Theater. Frederick Schiller Faust was known primarily for Western stories that he wrote under the pseudonym Max Brand. Brand's best-remembered character, though, wasn't a cowboy. It was a medical intern by the name of James Kildare. Brand created Kildare for a series of pulp fiction stories, and in the years to follow, Kildare starred in a series of movies, a radio series, and two television series, not to mention comic books. Tonight, Lou Ayers is Dr. Kildare, and Lionel Barrymore is his mentor, Dr. Gillespie, in a story about 
Mr. Bradley's Damaged Heart. It's the story of Dr. Kildare from November 17, 1950. The story of Dr. Kildare. Whatsoever house I enter, there will I go for the benefit of the sick. And whatsoever things I see or hear concerning the life of men, I will keep silence thereon, counting such things to be held as sacred trust. I will exercise my art solely for the cure of my... The story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers and Lionel Barrymore. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer brought you those famous motion pictures. Now this exciting, heartwarming series is heard on radio. In just a moment, the story of Dr. Kildare. But first, your announcer. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers as Dr. Kildare and Lionel Barrymore as Dr. Gillespie. Blair General Hospital, one of the great citadels of American medicine. A clump of gray-white buildings planted deep in the heart of New York, the nerve center of medical progress, where great minds and skilled hands wage man's everlasting battle against death and disease. Blair General Hospital, where life begins, where life ends, where life goes on. There's one more thing, gentlemen. I want to be told the facts. All the facts. Well, we seldom deal in imaginative flights of fancy here at Blair Hospital, Mr. Bradley. Oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Gillespie. I mean, I don't want the picture colored. I want the truth. In other words, you're afraid you may be in bad shape, and if so, you want to know about it. Is that it? Dr. Kildare, I believe that whether you're building a $5 million bridge or buying a nickel cigar... You can't make a logical decision unless you first have all the pertinent facts. And any time you try to dodge a fact, you're only handicapping yourself. That's a good theory. Happens to work in medicine as well as engineering. Well, Dr. Gillespie, since you're the diagnostician, maybe... No, 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 go ahead, Jimmy. Now, we're in full agreement on this case. Mm -hmm. Well, then, let's look at some of the facts that brought you here last night, Mr. Bradley. And see, you arrived on a plane from Mexico City, went straight into a six-hour conference with your board of directors, took a taxi home at midnight ran up the steps of your apartment and collapsed. Those, of course, are obvious facts. Go on. Well, behind them is another very important fact. You are 54 years old. Therefore, your heart is 54 years old. Well, that would seem obvious, too. Obvious, yes. But it's the most important fact of all, Mr. Bradley. That heart of yours has been working away steadily without a single pause 54 years, pumping 4,000 gallons of blood a day. Now, add it up. That's quite a job, especially for a machine that's never needed any repairs. There's the point. You see, to some extent, the heart does repair itself, but there are some cumulative changes with increasing age that can't be repaired. Mainly, they involve the coronary arteries that furnish the blood supply to the heart muscle itself. What kind of changes? Well, they're involved with the process of atherosclerosis, uh, hardening of the arteries. The walls of the arteries thicken and limit the flow of blood. Under ordinary conditions, there are no symptoms, but overexert get worked up emotionally, and angina. Sharp pain in the chest, shooting down the left arm. 
And that means what? Your heart's worn out? You're done for? Oh, ridiculous. Why, I've had hardening of the arteries for 25 years, Mr. Bradley. An attack like this one of yours is merely a warning that you've got to slow down and take it easier. Quit your job and rest for a while. Avoid emotional... Oh, that's dis- impossible. Impossible? Why? Well, I, uh, I'm nearly finished with the biggest job I've ever done. It's an irrigation project in central Mexico. My stockholders are expecting completion on the specified date. Several thousand farmers down there, depending on the water. I'll take it as easy as possible, gentlemen, but I can't quit. Keep on at your present pace, and you'll be back here within three months. Dr. Kildare, when I promise something, I deliver it. In three months, the job will be finished. Well, giving you the facts apparently hasn't done any good. You're making the wrong decision in spite of them. At least I'm able to figure my chances, so I know what I'm doing. In this case, Mr. Bradley, I'm afraid you don't know. Something down for five minutes around here disappears. Sometimes it's uncanny. What are you mumbling about? I'm not mumbling. I'm merely trying to find out what happened to a highly important package that came in the mail this morning. Well, there wasn't any package in the mail. Except an old seed catalog of some kind. Oh, that's what I'm looking for. I threw it out. What? What on earth do you want with a seed catalog? Oh, that's my business. Wait a minute. It's not that same old stuff about retiring. A little farm in Vermont with chrysanthemums and delphiniums and daffodils. Daffodils. Parker, you know just as much about horticulture as you know about nursing. Nothing. Oh, I know what's wrong with you. What is wrong with him, Parker? Oh, morning, Jimmy. Dr. Kildare, he's talking about retiring and snarling at everybody around here. No. Simply because he hasn't had an interesting case in nearly a week. Oh, I know. Ah, oh, she's out of her mind. Well, if she happens to be right, I may have a cure for you. A wayman's bringing an emergency patient from the airport. Be here in a few minutes. Oh? You know anything about the case, Jimmy? Only that the patient's name is Bradley, and it's a heart attack again. Bradley? Oh, by the great horn spoon. You know, we were wrong. It only took one month. You were right, gentlemen. And I was wrong. Well, the construction job's near enough done now, so it doesn't need pushing. It was quite a gamble, Mr. Bradley. Your life against the completion of a job. I've always kept my promises, Dr. Kildare. Anyway, I won the gamble. Well, now, that still remains to be seen. Hmm? A coronary thrombosis, when it isn't fatal, sometimes leaves the heart permanently damaged. I see. This coronary thrombosis, exactly what is it? Well, it involves those diseased coronary arteries I told you about before. For some reason, we don't know. A blood clot forms in one of the constricted spots and blocks off the blood supply to a part of the heart muscle. Result? Heart attack. Felt pretty much like the other attack, the one you called angina pectoris. Well, they're a lot alike, but a thrombosis is more serious. In some cases, yours, for instance, there's enough collateral circulation to keep the heart going on short rations until the thrombus is eliminated. But can't anything be done to prevent it? Yes, it can. Yep. Anybody who was warned by a mild attack of angina can have sense enough to change his way of life. Slow down. Take it easy. All right, Dr. Gillespie. I'm ready now to buy that advice. Come in. Oh, hello, Diana. Jimmy, Dr. 
Uh, Mr. Bradley, this is Miss Werner. Hello, Mr. Bradley. How do you do? Uh, she'll be your nurse during the various tests we're going to make. Well, what have I done to deserve the prettiest nurse in the hospital? Hey, thank you. Oh, easy now, Mr. Bradley. You've got a heart condition, you know. <laughs> All right, Dr. Kildare. And anyway, I saw that look she gave you. Hmm? Well, I... Dr. Kildare, I came to let you know the electrocardiograph is set up whenever you're ready. Good. We're ready now. Will you send for an orderly? Of course. Right away. Electrocardiograph. Sounds complicated. It is complicated, Mr. Bradley, but it's one very good way of getting some facts. You sure that machine's working all right? I don't feel a thing. No, you shouldn't. I think you better step it up a little, Jimmy. It's only touching seven. All right, Doctor. Maybe I'm short-circuited somewhere. It could be. It <laughs> may blow a fuse any minute. Diana, are you ready with those hypos? Yes, Doctor. More shots? What are they for this time? Oh, just to test your heart response to a couple of drugs. Gives us a few more facts. And what are those two drugs I'm taking now? This dicumarol, what's the other one? Quinine sulfate? Uh, quinidine sulfate. Mm. Well, the dicumarol tends to keep the blood liquefied. Helps dissolve that thrombus and reduces the danger of an embolus. Quinidine sulfate's a big help in the prevention of ventricular fibrillation. The heart beating out of rhythm and ceasing to function as a pump. Jimmy, I think we got enough control film now. Let's try the digitalis. Right. Uh, Diana, first hypo. Yes, Doctor? What have you found out so far, Dr. Gillespie? Well, we won't know until we go over the charts later. This is all being recorded on photographic film. Oh, I see. <laughs> Guess I was expecting something more spectacular. Uh, you'll get it with the next test. Phonocardiograph. Phonocardiograph? Yeah, it picks up your heartbeat and amplifies it electrically. It's quite a sound, Mr. Bradley. It may scare you right into a relapse. Well, there's an irregular slur on the recovery beat, Dr. Gillespie. Notice it? Yes, I did, Jimmy. Interesting. Oh, what's that mean? Well, nothing, nothing by itself. Just another fact. You shouldn't talk, Mr. Bradley. She's quite right. In fact, for a few seconds, I want you to hold your breath. All right. Yeah, yeah there it is. I can't quite understand it, Jimmy. All right, Mr. Bradley, that's enough. Uh, how many more of these tests are you going to have to make? Oh, this is only the beginning. What's coming up next? Well, we've recorded your heart action. We've listened to it. I think it's time we took a look at it. Uh, no, 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 wait a minute. Oh, you can relax. We'll use a fluoroscope. We don't have to take it out to look at it. Be all right if I raise him up to a sitting position? Yes, if we can get a better focus that way. Well, it's a better angle for the fluoroscope. Now, wait, Mr. Bradley. We'll raise the head of the stretcher. Sounds like the ratchet gear on the guillotine. Well, that's a fine, morbid observation, Mr. Bradley. There, uh, how's that? Well, let's see now. I can put the screen across here. Now, well, that's fine, Dr. Kildare. Take a few seconds for the tube to warm up. Uh, Dr. Kildare, you said something about possible damage to my heart. Exactly what did you mean? When the blood supply to some area of the heart muscle is temporarily interrupted, that area may die and be absorbed. Is replaced then by a scar tissue. Mm -hmm. And if the area is too large, it's just too bad. That it? Well, not necessarily. At all. all right, gentlemen. Anytime you're ready. Go ahead. Oh, here, Jimmy. Here. 
Plenty of room. I'll move over a little. Thanks. Can you see all right, Dr. Gillespie? Yes, Jimmy. I can see all right. Well, I think you can cut the machine off now. That's all for the present. All right, Doctor. Well, that was quick enough. Just one more fact, Mr. Bradley. Uh, Diana, you can have him taken back to his room now. All right. Well, what's the next step? Two of you get together and try to agree on some verdict? I guess that's about it. Well, Dr. Gillespie? Right with you, Jimmy. Well, I hope you reach a fast agreement. Everybody tells me the third attack is the one that's fatal. Just a superstition, Mr. Bradley. We'll look in on you later. You saw it, Jimmy, huh? Yes, bulging out a half inch or more with every heartbeat. That area is so thin you could poke your finger through it. And it'll get even thinner before it starts to heal. They break through any minute. I know. Well, he doesn't need to worry about a third attack. He hasn't got one chance in a hundred of living ten days. Hmm. We return to the story of Dr. Kildare in just a moment. Continue with the story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers as Dr. Kildare and Lionel Barrymore as Dr. Gillespie. Parker, don't stand there and tell me you don't know where he is. With that long nose of yours poking around through the corridors, you're bound to know. Well, I guess my nose is quite normal, thank you. Well, would be on an anteater. Oh. Kildare hasn't left the hospital. Therefore, he's in the hospital. Somewhere. But where? Well, how do you expect me to know? Oh, shut up, Parker. I'm talking to myself. Well. It's too bad you can't do some useful snooping once in a while instead of... Still there. Gillespie? Parker? Hello. I've been looking all over the hospital for you. Oh? I was up in the library file room reading case histories. Something on your mind? Yes. Bradley. I've thought of one possibility that might save him. My dear Dr. G, so have I. Ah? Uh, what's yours? No, 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 you first, Jimmy. Well, the Beck operation. Huh. Opening his chest, grafting a fascia over the weak area of the heart muscle. Hey, pretty dangerous, Jimmy. As it now stands, he has practically no chance. Well, the wall may hold out and heal by itself. You know it won't. Well, it does happen sometimes. If this were four or five days from now, maybe. But his heart's going to get worse before it even starts to heal. Yeah, I know, but nevertheless, Jimmy... I've gone through every case history in the library dealing with these so-called heart aneurysms, and you know the chances involved both ways. You've never performed a Beck operation. It's no tougher than a patent ductus, and I've had fair luck with those. Yes, you have. I don't see any other possibility, Dr. Gillespie. It's the only way. Let's go and talk to Mr. Bradley.
gentlemen. I've survived the shock of learning that my heart is seriously damaged. Let's have the details. Facts. Well, I told you, Mr. Bradley, that the heart wall in one particular area is so thin, it's bulging out every time your heart beats. It's like an automobile tire, Mr. Bradley, with the inner tube pushing out through a worn spot in the casing. The human heart kicks up a pretty fair head of pressure, you know. It'd have to to pump that 4,000 gallons a day you were talking about. Yeah. All right. What's likely to happen? Roughly the same thing that might happen with that inner tube of Dr. Gillespie's. A little extra pressure or a spot of deteriorating rubber, and that's that. You said something about an operation, Dr. Kildare. Is this what you meant? That's right. It involves opening the chest cavity and working on the heart itself. Hmm. Grafting a kind of a patch over the weak spot to prevent a blowout and give the muscle a chance to heal itself. That sounds like a fairly rough deal. Oh, it's been performed successfully in, in many cases. And you're advising it in my case? Yes. Do you agree, Dr. Gillespie? I do. As far as I can see, there's only one thing to consider. Without the operation, you have about a 1% chance of pulling through. What chance with it? Well, very good. Exactly how good? Mm, better than 50-50. I see. You ever performed this operation before, Dr. Kildare? Um, no, I haven't. Is he a good surgeon, Dr. Gillespie? During 35 years in the profession, I have never seen a better one. Well, for 20 years, I run a successful engineering firm on the policy of always hiring the best man for the job. And 50-50 is a fair enough bet. Let's get started. I've scheduled operating theater number six for 9.15, Dr. Kildare. It was the best I could do on such short notice. Six is fine, Parker, thanks. Now, what about personnel? Diana Verner will stand in as surgical nurse. I'd like you to handle the pre-med. All right. Anything special on it? No, standard. Still haven't heard about Ramsey, but I... Ramsey's assigned. I just okayed him. Oh, thanks. Uh, here are the lab reports. Bradley's general physical condition is excellent. So how do you feel? I'll be all right. Kildare speaking. This is Ramsey, Doc. understand we got a job of work to do. Yeah, kind of a tough one. So I hear. What do you plan to use? Maybe on the table a long time, so we'd better play it safe. Cyclopropane, plenty of oxygen. 2080? We'll start with that. Okay. 915 and 6, huh? Right. Bye. Well, I guess that's that. Well, apparently the next step is to operate. I won't need these other clamps, Miss Werner. Very well, Doctor. Uh, short forceps, please. Here you are. Amazing vitality. Muscle tone is marvelous. Sponge, please. Yes, Doctor. Pulse 63. Uh, what oxygen balance are you using now? Still 80-20. Go ahead. Sponge, please. Thanks. You still dripping plasma? Yes, Doctor. Good. Better give that second hypo now. Pulse 63. I think we can dispense with that pulse reading. Oh? I'm holding his heart here in my hands. Pulse 
Parker speaking. Well, I'm sorry, Dr. Kildare's still in surgery. Who's it, Yes, I know it's been over four hours, but nevertheless, Dr. Kildare's still in surgery. Goodbye. They act like it's my fault. Who does? Oh, the front office. They've got some reports or something for him to sign. Ah, they've always got some reports. Four hours. Confounded, Parker. Are you sure he's still in surgery? Now I get it from you. Anybody would think I was operating on Mr. Bradley. Well, I wish nobody was this long. Dr. Kildare knows what he's doing. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? A hundred things could go wrong. Name one. He could be cursed with having a nurse without a brain in her head. Well, that's gratitude for all the years I've given you. Who's winning? Oh, Jimmy. One of the comforting things in this changing world is the beautiful relationship between you and Parker. Mm -hmm. Jimmy, you have just set a hospital record. Four hours in surgery. Oh, no, I've been with Bradley in his room. We finished the operation a couple of hours ago. Well, you did, huh? Sure. Parker? Well, I thought, uh, I mean, I assumed. Oh, uh, I just remembered. I guess I'd better uh, go up to the 10th floor and, well, uh, do something about something. Yeah. Do something for me while you're up there, will you? Jump off. Oh. <laughs> I am so tired, I could sleep straight through 24 hours. Well, now, before you doze off, Jimmy... Did we win or lose? Oh, can't be entirely certain for several days, but judging by the absence of shock and his physical response, we won. He'll live, I'm sure. Good, good, good. And congratulations, Jimmy. Why do they do it, Dr. Gillespie? Do what? What Bradley did, ignore the warnings and throw away their lives. He was lucky. Thousands of people aren't. Why does a chicken cross the road? It's the simplest rule in the world. Use your head and save your heart. Yet they go right on ignoring it. Always going to slow down and take it easy next year. Uh, next year never comes. Never. Well, what can you do except give them the facts and hope for the best? Oh. And, and, of course, treat them when they come into the hospital. Sure, but most of them wouldn't even have to go to a hospital if they'd only think. Uh, but now you're slipping over into the realm of human foibles, Jimmy. And to avoid a lengthy and unproductive discussion, I think maybe you better get some sleep. In just a moment, we will return to the story of Dr. Kildare. again, the story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers as Dr. Kildare and Lionel Barrymore as Dr. Gillespie. I don't know, gentlemen. I suppose everybody's glad to leave a hospital. But I'm especially happy to be walking out instead of being carried. It's up to you from here on, Mr. Bradley. You can take it easy and live 20 years or more. Or go back to the same high-speed life in that third attack. Uh, not me, Dr. Kildare. I've already made arrangements. I'm retiring to a little farm in Vermont. Vermont? Vermont. Oh, well, 
now, well, that's uh, very interesting. Well, that's where I'm going when I retire. It's a great country, all right. Oh. Well, I won't take up any more of your time. You know, you can't really thank anyone for saving your life, so I'll just say goodbye. Goodbye, uh, goodbye, Mr. goodbye. Uh, a farm in Vermont. Ah, that is the life, Jimmy. Farm in Vermont. Raising flowers and veggies. Ah, you wouldn't retire if you were 120 years old and you know it. Ma, next year, maybe, away from all this madhouse of nothing to worry about. Dr. Gillespie, I want... Well, Parker, what do you want? Well, it's these new hot water bottles. There's something wrong with them. Look, I filled this one with water and it bulges. Bulges, huh? Well, now, that's right down Kildare's alley. He's an authority on bulges. You think you can graft a patch on it, Jimmy? Well, let's see it, Parker. Yeah. Would you advise major surgery, Doctor? It's apparently defective, all right. Ma. Notice what happens when you squeeze it. Oh, that's nothing, Dr. Kildare. It's when you push on it here mm. that it really... Oh, good heavens. Confound it, Parker. What are you trying to do? Drown me? I didn't know it. <laughs> she didn't know it was loaded, Dr. Gillespie. Of all the nincompoops... Oh, in answer to your question a moment ago, I wouldn't advise surgery. No, no, the patient is just too far gone. Here's a towel. You have just heard the story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers and Lionel Barrymore. This program was written by Les Crutchfield and directed by William P. Russo. Original music was composed and conducted by Walter Schumann. Supporting cast included Virginia Gregg, Georgia Ellis, Wilms Herbert, and Vic Perrin. Dick Joy speaking. The story of Dr. Kildare from November 17, 1950. Dr. Kildare creator Max Brand angled for a position as a war correspondent during World War II and was mortally wounded in Italy. Lou Ayers started out as a musician and he played the banjo and the guitar in big bands before going into acting in silent films and then talkies. Lou Ayers' career was jeopardized in 1942 when he was drafted and claimed conscientious objector status. After the war, the cloud lifted when it became known that from 1942 to 46, Lou Ayers had served honorably as a non-combatant medic. Next, it's Bogart and McCall in Bold Venture. This is Skywave Audio Theater. Each week in 1951 and 1952, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren McCall, husband and wife, sailed in the wake of Havana resident Ernest Hemingway, in particular Hemingway's novel To Have and Have Not. The film version of the novel starred Bogart as a boat owner in the Caribbean, one who gets drawn into intrigue while romancing Bacall's character. In Bold Venture, the relationship between inn-owner Slate Shannon and King Moses, the singer, is reminiscent of the relationship between Rick Blaine and Sam in Casablanca. And things get complicated tonight 
in a hurry when Shannon gets ripped off in a big way. This is Bold Venture from November 12th, 1951. Bold Venture! Adventure, intrigue, mystery, romance, starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Together in the sultry setting of tropical Havana and the mysterious islands of the Caribbean. Bold Venture. again, the magic names of Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall bring you Bold Venture and a tale of mystery and intrigue. Sailor, can you think of anything else to put in this letter we're sending to our former guests? What have you got so far? Well, let's see. I've got the item about how we've nailed down the hole in the carpet on the third step. And our casualty list is decreasing by leaps and bounds. Well, that ought to titillate them. Have you mentioned the spigots and the shower in 4B? You've been keeping secrets from me, Sailor. What do you know about the spigots in 4B that I don't know? I had King change them around. (laughs) That sounds like fun. How come I wasn't invited? Now, when you turn on the spigot that says hot, hot water comes out. If there's any hot water. Who can ask for a squarer deal than that? Shannon! Huh? You say something, sailor? Shannon! What happened to your voice, sailor? You've been taking those dramatic lessons again? Go pour your face in a waffle iron. You're being paged out on the patio. (laughs) Don't pout, sailor. Someday it'll happen to you. Why don't you come right on inside, mister? Don't let the rates on the signs, Kay. We can always work something out. You walked right into it, you naive boy, you. Now that you've shown me your gun, you can have any room in the house. All the other hotels are filled up, huh? You just said something that'll make me chuckle myself to sleep. The keys, Shannon. The keys to the dreamboat bold venture. You're not doing this right, Buster. You're asking for the wrong thing. I'm happy you're making it hard for me. Lucky me. I get to pick your pockets and everything. Dream a dream of a dreamboat that sailed away, Shannon. This bull venture handles like a sweet dream, Paul. Don't fall in love with it, kid. Just dock it. What's the matter? You nervous? Dock the boat. Keep it right where we are, kissing this pier. Careful with the dynamite. Don't be nervous. Not nervous, Al. This is the way I throw myself. Be right back, kid. Bring money. That's all you got to do. Good evening, Chico. Buenas noches, senor. But you have the wrong place, see? Uh Uh-uh. I've been thinking of this place day and night. Oh, senor... What is it you wish? Part of it is this. Inside. This, my boy. Again. Now close the door. Close it. 
You want this gun to let the air whistle through you. Oh, nice. You did that good. What mistake are you making, senor? This is the office of the Tomasino Refining Company. I am but the night watchman. I do not know what... Tell your friends. Tell them all about it. Oh, you're not such a big safe at that, are you? Now, let's see you spill your innards out. Oh, Al's going to be happy to see all that money. Like I didn't hit that watchman hard enough. Come on, come on. Take it easy. I gotta turn this tub around. Did you get. Uh, you wing it? Uh, yeah. Ernst, hold the wheel. Grab it. We're okay, Al. Don't worry about a thing. Don't worry about anything at all. It'll leave a scar where I hit you, Slate. So, now girls will stop on the street and say, who's that interesting fellow with the interesting scar on his forehead? And you know what? I'll tell them. But you can no longer ask them would they care to go for a boat ride, Mr. Slate. Yeah. What are you going to do now that you've run out of bribes, Slate? You've been barred from our better streetcars. Well, let's worry about one thing at a time, huh, sailor? Right now I'm in the mood to shed another tear for a boat I built my life around. I called the lost and found department of the police again, Mr. Slate. Yeah, what they say? They say no boat. Don't call us. We'll call you. They'll find it, Slate. Everyone knows the bold venture. Somebody's bound to. Oh, I'll get it. I'll get it. Slate Shannon speaking. I shall wait for you on Buanapo Beach, senor. Do not keep me waiting too long. I bubble with secrets of the bold venture. <laughs> I wait. You bring yourself? Yeah, I bring myself. Come on, sailor. Let's go talk to a man who's bubbling with all kinds of things. Senor Shemel? That's right. Who are you? Uh, what about the senorita? You'll never know, amigo. Start saying what you have to say, Chico. A man can catch the croup in this night air. See, si, that is why we shall make the rapid. First, to prove to you my stirring character, all I wish is uh, 50%. 50% of what? Oh, forgive me, I did not explain. I shot at you earlier this evening. You must have used a short, flabby gun, Chico, because... I am not, Chico. I am Senor Malaga, night watchman at the Tomasino refinery. Malaga, to you with the senor in front. Slate, turn your back to the man with the senor in front. Let's get out of here. Now, wait a minute. How'd you know anything about the bull venture, Malaga? To refresh your memory, I will give you several items. Item one, the Tomasino refinery was robbed tonight. A fact which I reported to the police. I give you a hearty slap on the back for citizenship. 
So what's the bold venture got to do with it? Uh, you know too well the bold venture was used as the method of getaway for the crime I mentioned in item one. You are the man who drove the boat away. I consider this intelligence as item two. I'll bet item three is going to chill you to your quick slate. One man, your friend, blew up the safe. You remained with the boat and sped zoom into the night. So you saw the name of the boat and found out who owned it from the ship's registry. And came to me. <laughs> and now you want 50% of what was stolen. See how you are right. Or I will make a return appearance at the police and breathe your name. You're going to breathe it, huh? <laughs> Inhale deep, Chico. <laughs> Come on, sailor. We'll take it from here. How do you like the tired world we live in, sailor? Oh, tired. You said it, kid. A loyal, true blue night watchman gets beaten on the head, robbed. And he tried to make friends with the guy he thinks did it to him for a share of the profits. How do you like it? I have to tell you now... Can't you wait until morning? You sleepy? Oh, it shows, huh? Or did you just diagnose that because you once took a course in first aid? <laughs> Go on up to your room, sailor. I'll take care of things down here. Hey, hey, look at what just walked in. Yeah, I'm looking. How does a girl stay that fresh this time of night? How does she... Go on up to your room, sailor. I promise I'll take care of things down here. You know what? I ain't sleepy no more. Like that I ain't sleepy. Doesn't it sicken you? If I'd known you were coming, I'd have rolled out a doormat. Welcome. Welcome to Shannon's place. I'm Shannon. And I'm Duval. Of Shannon and Duval. I won't break it up, honey. All I want from your boy is my husband's cut of the dough they stole together. Oh, that'll be the heist your goom and I pulled at the Tomasino refinery, huh? You own the bold venture? Uh-huh. That would be the heist. I, uh... Came to pick up Al's pay envelope. You know how husbands are, honey. They get their pay, they don't come home right away. Ain't it always that way, honey? A skate works her fingers to the bone. Her guy don't appreciate. He makes hanky-panky. You bore me, kid. The dough, Shannon. I want Al's share of the dough. When we were married, we swore community property to each other. You won't live to break up a love like that. Don't go away, doll. You fascinate me. Shannon speaking. Yeah? Well, why don't you just tell me over the phone, LaSalle? Oh. Okay, right away. You two gals go right ahead with the girl talk. I've got a thing with a cop. Hey, you found it, Inspector LaSalle. You found my boat. You are happy, see? Well, you bet I'm happy, see? I was starting to get frantic, see? Do not stop getting that way, Senor Shannon. Well, what are you talking about? Come aboard the boat. I will show you. What's on your mind? Come aboard. All right. Oh, you mean the muddy footprints on deck? I don't mind. Sailors are whiz with a mop and a bucket. Here. Look here. This man lying there. You had trouble with him, huh? Looks like he's hurt. He is dead. Dead? Why? How? Why on my boat? So what is all this? Wait. Senor Malaga. See, si, Inspector? 
Malaga. Hey, that's the... I said wait. Hey, uh, Malaga, take a good look at this man. I have looked. I have made up my mind. This is the man who robbed the refinery, eh? I should have brained you the first time. <laughs> Don't do not let him touch me, Inspector. This is Shannon. Or my gun will cripple your intentions. Hey, that is better. Now you are merely under arrest for murder. stars Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall and the second act of our story. Please observe, Miss Noval, how the penal system of Cuba provides for the recreation of our cutthroats, volleyball. He gets rid of the energy. Why isn't Slate playing? Why is he just sitting there with a bicycle pump? This worries me, too. We will find out. Senor Shannon! Venga aquí! Come here! He looks tired. It's about time you got here, sailor. You don't have to snap at me. What's the matter? Won't the other fellows let you play? Won't let me play. I'm the coach, sailor. Gone to tour, give exhibitions at all the pokies in the Caribbean. Oh, it'll be like old times for you, Inspector LaSalle. Uh, mind if I talk to the man alone? For one minute. And this is against the rules. I only acquiesce because of Senor Shannon's contribution to our athletic program. What'd you find out, sailor? I didn't find out anything. Look, sailor, what did that woman tell you after I left? Nothing. She walked out in back of you. Well, you've got to do something. Find that night watchman, Malaga. Make him say he was mistaken. Make him say he never saw me before. How am I going to do that? Just let him stare at you. It'll make him forget everything he ever knew. I want to learn all over again. <laughs> Stop melting, sailor. Here comes LaSalle. Whatever you're selling, boy, take it down the hall. I'm fresh in or whatever you got. You can take the black crepe down off your door, Widow Chapman. I brought you a happy, happy. Uh, this is a hallway with a big ear, honey. Why don't we go inside? Tell me first, with who do I have the pleasure? Call me Paul, because that's what Al called me. When he died, he whispered my name. Paul. Like that. You try it, honey. You, uh... Brought his widow Al's gift from beyond? Uh-huh. In the right-hand coat pocket. Well, why do you let a widow stand out in a cold hall? Why don't you take her inside? Come on. All right, the dough, the money, the cash. Give me. Here. Five grand. Al told me he'd knock off at least ten on that job. Did he? Did he now? Well, it was only a comment. A girl can be happy with five thousand and no husband to guide her. Just for that, just because you're so nice, I'll throw in me for nothing. Al should have introduced you to me a long time ago, Marge. So we finally meet when there's finally no Al. 
Oh, it's a bright day, Paul. It drips with sunshine. That watchman identifies Shannon because I'm cute enough to use Shannon's boat. The watchman shoots Al, points a finger at Shannon. Shannon is held for theft and murder. That leaves me and you alone in all the wide, wide world. Oh, bless that watchman. He might get a good look at Shannon one day and know it wasn't him. You're kidding, Marge. I said bless the watchman. Things like this, you say, over the dead. Uh, you want to hang this coat up somewhere? Pardon the disposition of my house, senorita. But I did not expect such as you. Don't apologize, Malaga. I like your place. Cozy and homey. Oh, such as you, senorita. Never have I been so close to one such as you. I am not distasteful to you. Distasteful isn't the word. <sighs> I am happy. You're going to tell the police you made a mistake, aren't you? You didn't see Slate at that robbery. For you? For me. Whatever you... Oh, pardon, senorita. <gasps> senorita! Malaga, what happened? The knife beats at my heart. The pain... <gasps> Look, LaSalle, you finally get me in your crummy pokey. I finally get my cell arranged around to suit a man of my tastes and breeding. Why don't you let me enjoy it? Hmm. I will keep you from your cozy cell only a few moments, Shannon. Now, look, don't pull a gun on me. I'll stay and chat with you. You're really lonesome, aren't you, kid? Oh, the gun in my hand is only that I feel nude without it. Policemen have nightmares where he's in a room with a desperate killer and there is no gun in his hands. <laughs> I'm in your nightmares, too, huh, kid? Lucky me. You are decorating my office, Shannon, because Malaga, the watchman who identified you, has been killed dead with a knife. Confess to me who are your hooligan comrades, the hooligans who murder for you while you are in jail, the hooligans who... Let's see now. There's, uh, there's Peppy the Dirk. He's our number one hooligan, and there's Waxy the Finger. They call him that because he always got his finger in his mouth and... Do not make funnies with me, senor. From this window I gaze upon Havana And Havana gazes back and she asks me LaSalle, why do you... You got that nude feeling again, LaSalle Because you just left your gun on your desk And it just leaped into my hand No, don't turn around Tell me what Havana was asking you So I can make a smooth exit, huh? You cannot escape, senor, you cannot I wish you could turn around to watch me, LaSalle <laughs> the fool thinks he engineered his own escape. <laughs> ah, LaSalle, I pat your clever bald head. Here. Pat it with your gun, LaSalle. I don't understand it, but thanks. Get out of here. I give you a chance to prove yourself not guilty. Take it before I change my stupid mind. <laughs> Tell me again how you escaped from jail, Slate. Oh, I can't. It was too bloody. It'll haunt me always. Go on, tell me. You sure you can take it, kid? I brought my own grain of salt. Uh, by the way, you'd better order some more. I just cleaned us out. You don't believe it, sailor. 
You don't believe how I held LaSalle in front of me as a human shield, mowed down three finks who stood in my way, finks I swore to get, scaled the prison wall, those searchlights, those sirens screaming, the Tommy guns typing out my obituary, the other cons cheering me on. Uh, we're out of salt, huh? Order some. I'm your ma, kid. Been with you through thin and the thick, mostly the thin. So out with it, knucklehead. What really happened? It's like I told you, sailor. Uh, Mr. Slade, a little boy just came to the door. He had a message for you. I took it. A little boy with torn pants. Now, well, you can sew them up later, King. What message? Uh, from a man of the name Paul. This Paul waits for you on Verdugo Key. He say if you want to sit in the fat lap of luxury to bring the bold venture. Who wants to sit anywhere else? Let's go, sailor. I've been waiting to get a fat lap thrown at me. I owe one to LaSalle. Come on, hurry up, sailor. Yeah, I'll give you a hand on the boat. Thanks. I always like to watch a guy hand a girl onto something. Well, if it isn't the man who heisted my boat key, what do you want this time? You were just going over to Verdugo Key to get me. I'm saving you trouble. A uh, point of information. Is your name Paul? Paul. Me and my gun have been reading the papers and wondering about you, Shannon. How come you break out of prison and go right home and the cops never touch you? I remember the boys at Christmas. Uh-uh, that's not why. What'd they do, deputize you to find me? Because you're the only one who knows who to look for because I once stole your boat to blast a safe. Tell them who I am, sailor. What? Go ahead. Tell them how we got this boat. Well, uh, the lady who owned it wasn't pretty. But she was middle-aged and wealthy. I believe the phrase is, uh, she was a sucker for a con. What's she trying to say, Shannon? She's trying to tell you that you and I can match backgrounds. You want proof? Just that, proof. Well, there's an easy job we can pull tonight. Consuelo is a jewelry shop on the tourist pier. It's a cinch. This time of night, she's coming. Okay, Shannon, I'll nurse this boat. This ladder leads to the back of Consuelo's. Bring back money. See you, sailor. Consuelo. Oh, Slade Shannon, baby. Why do you walk in my shop the back way on tippy-toe? You can come in the front on your flat feet. Do me a favor. Oh, Wait, I, I go call my home, tell them I work late at the store tonight. All I want you to do is scream. Uh, this is a, a new approach from the United States? Please, if you've ever done anything for me in your life, scream. Hmm? All right. Okay, you did fine. I need some money, Consuelo, a lot of money, all you've got in the store. You can throw in some choice diamonds, too. You are in trouble, dear one, to me. Yeah, a lot of trouble. So, here is money, the, the weaker seats, and here, jewelry, a tray. Consuela, I love you. I will also return the merchandise and another one of these. Mm. 
Oh, take another diamond. Adios, dear one to me. What'd you bring back, Shannon? Cash box full of money and a tray full of jewelry here. Oh, we get friendlier all the time. We heard her scream, Slate. What did you do to her? When I left her, she was numb. Let's get out of here. Ah, now the boat's going to give me trouble. What's with you, Shannon? Get her going. I can't start it. You're clever with boats. You do it. Out of the way. No wonder you didn't turn on the... No, you don't, Shannon. I can't hear you. You want it all, Shannon? I'll give it a... Not all, just this much. Is it all over now? Can we go home? Sure, sailor. First we dump this guy on LaSalle's doorstep. Then we go wherever you want. Hey, Slade. What? Where did you get that diamond ring? What ring? Not the one on your nose. The one you're wearing on your finger. A gift from an admirer. Consuela? Yeah, she uh, she admires me because I'm clean living, upright, and a solid citizen. Bully for you. How'd you get the ring? Like this? Come here. You blame her? No. You have a jewelry shop. You give jewels. Once more, Slade. That makes a dime even I owe you. Take another one. I'm having a special this week. Three for ten. And so our two stars, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, have brought to a close our latest Bold Venture story. Special music was composed and conducted by David Rose. May we invite you to listen again next week at this time for another exciting adventure starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall together in Bold Venture. Screams and kisses and a slightly bogus accent or two in the steamy tropics. That was Bold Venture, Bogart and Bacall, in a broadcast from November 12, 1951. You heard King Moses briefly in there. Well, his usual role was to provide musical interludes that moved the plot along. You did hear music from David Rose, plenty of it, and Rose worked a lot in radio and TV, but achieved his widest recognition for a song that he recorded with his orchestra in 1958. Four years later, it was a quick pick for the B-side of a tune called Ebb Tide, and the B-side was called The Stripper. It hit number one on the Billboard charts and uh, quickly went gold, a surprise for everybody. Next, Dragnet. 
This is Skywave Audio Theater. Jack Webb was born in the right place for an actor, Santa Monica, California. But his first big career effort came with World War II. Jack Webb enlisted in the Army Air Corps, but when he washed out of flight training, he was back in the civilian job market, which happened to have a wartime shortage of radio announcers. Webb moved to San Francisco, where he launched a comedy show, it's hard to believe now, a show that didn't last too long. And then he found his groove with Patton Novak for Hire, which was set in San Francisco. From there, it was just a hop and a skip to the role of his lifetime, a role that he created and turned into a radio and TV franchise, Joe Friday in Dragnet. From the first season, we have a bunco case. This is Jack Webb in Dragnet from November 17, 1949. <laughs> story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes brings you Dragnet on both radio and television. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a bunco detail. An experienced confidence man has set up operations in your city. From his first two victims, he gets more than $8,000. You've got one good lead on the suspect, his method of operation. Your job, get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, December 9th. It was windy in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of Bunko Detail. My partner's Ed Jacobs. The boss is Captain Steve. My name's Friday. I was on the way into the office, and it was 7.50 a.m. when I got to room 38. Bunko Detail. Oh, morning, Joe. Hi, Charlie. How'd you make out yesterday? Nothing. No luck at all, huh? Nothing's going to help as much. Got the same description on the guy, used the same name, same M.O. Didn't get anything we don't already know about him. How about you? Your luck any better? No, about the same. Checked out the building where the suspect rented office space. He moved out three days ago. No forwarding address. Checked a hotel he was supposed to be stopping at. Didn't pan out. Mm, give him time. He'll stick his neck out again. Well, it doesn't guarantee we'll reach him. Too late to start when the complaints come in. We're going to have to dig up a faster way of getting to him. Mm. Hey, you got a match? Yeah, sure, Charlie. Here you are. Thanks. You bet. Oh, by the way, what's this I hear about your partner? What? Ed Jacobs understands you're losing him. Oh, yeah, temporarily, anyway. What's the deal? Well, he's going on a loan out up at the academy. Going to be an instructor up there two months, anyway, maybe more. When does this happen? Tomorrow, the 10th. Well, what are you going to do for a partner? You and Ken going to work together? No, the captain's bringing in a new man, young fella. He's been working in the business office. You mean the big Irish kid works the early morning? No, ones? no, this boy's been working days. His name's Bill Lockwood. I asked for him as soon as I found out I was going to lose Ed. You know him? Well, a little bit, yeah. You remember Ben Romero? Yeah, sure. Well, Lockwood's a nephew of Ben's. Sister's boy. Tall, red hair. Oh, yeah, I've seen him around. Seems to be a nice enough kid. A good record, is he? Well, the captain thinks so. Figures he ought to work in pretty well. Yeah. Oh, by the way, have you seen Ben's wife lately? Yeah, I did. A couple of weeks ago. Seems to be doing all right. Still Mrs. Ben, of course. Yeah, I imagine. Her little boy's sure getting big. Looks a lot like his dad, too. Miss him quite a bit yourself, huh? 
Yeah, Charlie, I guess I do. Well, I'd better get on my horse. You got some checking to do. I hope the Lockwood boy works out for you. Well, I think you'll do all right. Can't say I'd be crazy about the idea myself. What do you mean? Breaking in a new man. No detective experience. When I go out to pick up a thief, I like to figure I've got some good backing. I mean, a partner I'm used to. Tough enough watching out for yourself, let alone a green youngster. Well, somebody had to do it for us. That's the way it goes. Yeah, I suppose. I remember when I first started, it didn't come much greener than me. Partner did all the work, took all the chances, helped me every foot of the way. He never mentioned it once. Hmm. I never forgot that. He's a good cop. What was his name? Ben Romero. In our particular setup, before a man's eligible to apply for duty in the detective bureau, he has to have a minimum of five years' experience as a police officer, either assigned to radio patrol, traffic duty, or some other general assignment. After the initial five years of service, the men go through a screening process to determine which department and which job they'll fit into best, some position that they seem to show a natural aptitude for. If a man applies for duty in a division of the detective bureau, and if he's accepted, He's assigned a partner to work with the day he goes on the job, generally a working detective with some experience. In the case of Ben's nephew, Bill Lockwood, he put in his first five years working Wilshire traffic and also doing radio patrol in Hollenbeck and 77th Street divisions. After spending another 11 months in our business office, Captain Steed put in a request for him and he was transferred. When I heard Ed Jacobs was gonna be loaned to the police academy as an instructor, I talked to Captain Steed about Lockwood and he assigned him as my new partner. The changeover happened in the middle of one of the toughest investigations we'd had in months. A bunco artist who was working hard at the business opportunities racket. The following morning, December 10th, Bill Lockwood reported in for work and we drove out to check a potential lead on the suspect. On the way, I laid out the case for him. Nothing on the men in R&I, huh? No record at all? No, not as far as we know, Bill. Check Brereton up at Sacramento, CII. Nothing doing there. He couldn't help us. What have you been going on? His description? Yeah, that and his M.O. and his name. He uses a different alias on each job. Russell Preston, that was the last name he used. I see. He usually starts by putting a want ad in the paper, is that it? Well, he rents himself an office first, usually pretty expensive when well-furnished. Then he hires a good-looking secretary, has her put a want ad in the daily papers for him, and he's in business. How do the ads read? The usual? Yeah, typical thing you see in the daily paper. A business opportunity for people with vision, good investment, high profit supply now, you know. And then he gives his address and phone number. There's nothing clever about it, but people still go for it. He get many replies, do you know? Well, we figure he got between 20 and 30 on that last deal he pulled. Seems all he has to do is land one victim out of the bunch with enough money and he's got it made. Took his first victim here for 5,000, second one for 3,200, both elderly women. Took them for their last dollar. About the way he sets up the deal with these different businessmen, Joe, I don't think I got it quite straight. Well, how do you mean? Well, say the owner of that manufacturing plant this Russell Preston lined up. Yeah. You say Preston went to the plant, introduced himself as a business advisor, told the owner of the plant he had some people with money to invest. He convinced the owner he was legitimate. Yeah, that's right. And Preston had his two victims shown through the plant and convinced them they ought to invest their money in the business. Yeah, that's it. Do you mean to say the plant owners were acting in good faith? Well, they were all checked out, Bill. Everything about them. They all have good business reputations. They didn't know any more about the deal than the victims. They needed more capital for their business, and they figured this was it. This Preston, or whatever his name is, sure must have a line that won't stop. He's got everything that goes with it. Nice clothes, well-mannered, good-looking. He doesn't try to high-pressure anybody. Tells them if they have confidence in him, he'd be glad to invest their money. If they hedge it all, he shows them right through the office. Pretty good pitch. Once they're sold on him, he's got them over a barrel. It's about the size of it, yeah. Funny there's no record on him. Sure sounds like he's had a lot of experience. What are the other names he's used, do you remember? Well, just two of them we know of. Russell R. Preston and George A. Fairchild. 
I guess the newspapers have been checked out, huh? The ones he ran the water ads in? Yeah, they've all been talked to. All their personnel have been notified to watch for ads of that type. It'd be one way to get a lead on him if he tries again. Well, what about the buildings where he rented office space? Couldn't the people there help any? Well, they confirmed his description. We picked up samples of his handwriting. That's about it. He only rented the offices long enough to cover his deal, about two weeks. Let's see, what hundred block is this bill? Can you see over there? Let's see. Yeah, seventeen hundred. Well, we want the next one, eighteen eleven. Who's this woman we're going to talk to? Vivian Castle, all right? Yeah, I'm not sure if she's the right girl or not. Got the lead from an employment agency. Chance she might be the girl Preston hired to be a secretary. I don't know. Hmm. Well, good parking place up there ahead, huh? Yeah, that's good. You can pull up anywhere along here. It's fine. Two doors down, Joe. Real estate office, 1811. Yeah, I see it. Police officers, ma'am. We'd like to talk to a Miss Castle, Vivian Castle. Oh, I'm Vivian Castle. Well, here's our identification. This is my partner, Officer Lockwood. My name's Friday. How do you do? How do you do? What is it you want, officers? We'd like to find out if you know a George Fairchild, ma'am. Fairchild? No, I don't know anyone by that name. How about a Russell Preston, miss? That mean anything to you? Well, I used to work for Mr. Preston, Russell Preston. About how long ago was that? A month, month and a half ago. Mm -hmm. Where does he have his offices? Well, he did have them on South Grand, near 8th, the old Belmont Harris building. Why? Would you mind describing Mr. Preston for us, ma'am? Just a general description of him. Mm, he's about 40, 45 years old. Brown hair, a little gray. Nice build. Seemed to be a very nice man at first. Always dressed so nice. Always wore a dark blue suit. Seemed to be very nice. Checks out so far, Joe. Yeah. Would you mind telling me what it's about? Well, we'd like to locate Mr. Preston, ma'am. You any idea where he is now? I wish I did. I'd call the State Labor Commission. He seemed like such a nice man. I've never been so disappointed in my life. How do you mean, Miss Castle? He owes me two weeks' pay, $65 a week. Hired me as a private secretary. Good jobs aren't hard to get now, either. He can't say he was giving me a break when he hired me. Are you from the Labor Commission? No, ma'am, we're not. Could you tell us how long you worked for this, Mr. Preston? Just the three weeks. He said I was going to get paid every Friday. Gave me the money for the first week, and that's all. Kept waiting for my pay, but he kept putting me off. Last week and a half, he didn't even show up at the office. I was there all alone, eight hours a day. I mean, the building manager showed up and told me it was all over. Mr. Preston closed the office. Didn't even have the decency to come in and say thank you, goodbye. I just left. And you have no idea at all where Mr. Preston is now? No, sir. I wish I did. Were there any office files, mail files, any way to get a possible line on him? Not as far as I know. I didn't keep any files for him. Matter of fact, I didn't do any work at all. Just a showpiece, I guess. That's all he kept me there for. There's no reason why he shouldn't pay me, though. Are you sure you're not from the Labor Commission? Did Mr. Preston ever have you place any want ads in the daily papers, Miss Castle? Mm, yeah, he did a couple of times. Ads for business opportunities, you know. Mm -hmm. He was in the investment business, helped people invest their money. Would you happen to know anyone who invested money with him? I mean, would you know them by name? No, not by name. Quite a few people came through the office. I know a few of them made deals with Mr. Preston. I wouldn't remember their names, though. And you don't know any friends he might have had in town? Any of his business associates? No, sir, not a one. I didn't know he had any associates. How about where he was staying, Miss Castle? You must have known that. Mm, yeah, the first week I was there, I did. It's the only week I got paid for him. He was staying at a small hotel on South Flower. He moved the next week, though. I don't know where he went after that. Neither does the hotel, I asked them. Well, during the time you worked for him, ma'am, did you ever have anything to do with Mr. Preston socially? I mean, was it part of your job to go out to dinner with him, things like that? I did once or twice when he asked me. I didn't think it was part of my job, though. Mr. Preston didn't mention it either. Once we went out to dinner, just the two of us. Another time we went out with my girlfriend, Norma. I had a terrible time. Mr. Preston was awful. How do you mean, miss? 
Well, he drank too much and was throwing his weight around. You know, the boss. And he kept making a play for my girlfriend, Norma. I think he liked her quite a bit. I'm sure it was embarrassing, though. Look, would you mind telling me what's the matter? Is Mr. Preston in trouble with the police? Yes, ma'am, I'm afraid so. He's cheated some people out of quite a bit of money. It's not the first time, either. Well, what was it? What'd he do? Confidence game. Selling interest in the company he had no connection with. If that isn't the limit. I guess it's my own fault. I should have known better. It's happened before. Ma'am? They hire you. They give you a beautiful office, nice soft chair to sit on. They never give you any work to do. You don't have to lift a finger. I finally got the drift. Yeah. Those are the kind you have to watch out for. Bill Lockwood and I continued questioning the former secretary of Russell Preston, alias George Fairchild, but she was unable to come up with any kind of a definite lead as to the suspect's whereabouts. We left our card with the girl, and she promised to contact us in the event she came across any information regarding Preston. For the rest of the day, we ran down three more possible leads. They came from an informant, a head waiter in a second-rate nightclub, a small-time grifter with an axe to grind. And they all figured they had the right answer, where to find Preston. We checked out the three locations they gave us, a motel out near Santa Monica, a rooming house in Hollywood, a cocktail lounge in Highland Park. Not one of the three paid off. Russell Preston, alias George Fairchild, wasn't known at any of the places, either by name, dress, or physical description. During the next three weeks, along with Sergeants Charlie Riblett and Ken Scarce of Bunko Detail, Bill Lockwood and I ran down every possible lead on the suspect. Hotels, the want-ad departments of the daily papers, managers of downtown office buildings, secretarial employment agencies, small businesses advertising stock for sale. They got us nothing. Despite all the precautions and all the legwork, on January 6th, we got a call from a Mrs. Marie Barrett in the Westlake Park area. She owned and managed a toy shop just off Wilshire Boulevard. Bill Lockwood and I drove out to talk to her. Yes, and they told me it was the opportunity of a lifetime, a big opportunity. I just can't believe it. Can't understand it. Why, he even took me out and showed me the factory. Him and the man who ran the place, they're making plastics. Showed me the whole plant. You say the plant was out in Glendale, ma'am. Whereabouts? It was right along San Fernando Road, maybe a mile or two before you get to the airport. They showed me through the whole plant. Who showed you through, Miss Barrett? Owner of the place in this, Mr. Fairchild. It's a big place, making plastics of all kinds. Can't say I wasn't impressed. What was Mr. Fairchild's first name, do you remember? George. George Fairchild and Associates. That was the name on the door of the office when I went up to see him. Of course, I really didn't have a notion to invest any money when I first went up. It was a newspaper ad, you know, and I answered lots of them. Kind of a hobby with me. Yes, ma'am. So I... Went up to see him and we talked, and as I say, I wasn't thinking of investing any money, but Mr. Fairchild seemed like such a nice man. Seemed to have a good business head in his shoulders. Well, ended up with me putting my whole savings account into the plastics plant. $6,400, every penny of it. I haven't heard from Mr. Fairchild since. I just don't know what to think. I can't understand it. Do you have any idea where to contact this Fairchild now? Any address, telephone number? Well, I called his office. It's in the Oxford Exchange Building. Mm -hmm. There's no answer, though. They say it's disconnected. I've been trying for a week to contact Mr. Fairchild. I mean, $6,400. I just don't know what to do. It's all my savings. I don't know what to do. Oh, you excuse me, please. Customer can't afford to miss a sale now. Yes, ma'am. You go right ahead. Alan, will you help this lady, please? Looks like he scored again, huh? I wouldn't doubt it. She seems to do a fair business here, huh? I mean, after Christmas and all. Yeah, I suppose. Of course, the women go for it. You hang up a sale sign, you can't beat them off with a club. That's right. See this gadget here? Pretty clever, huh? Yeah. Miniature Sherman tank. What's it do? Watch. Yeah, well, how about that? Pretty cute, isn't it? Cannons on the side, sparks coming out. My nephew got one for Christmas. I got a lot of power. Treads I'll will climb it. over just about anything. Uh huh. Sorry to keep you waiting, officers. Customers 
have to be attended to. Surely, we understand. Now, about this money you gave Fairchild and Miss Barrett, the $6,400, how'd you work that? I mean, did you give him a check, or how'd you do it? Yes, I gave him a check. It was cash the same day I gave it to him. I found that out from the bank. What was it you were supposed to get for your money, ma'am? Interest in the plastics company, one-fifth interest. Seemed like such a good idea at the time. Did you ever discuss the deal with the owners of the plastics company? I mean, when Mr. Fairchild wasn't around? No, I guess I never did. Mr. Fairchild didn't think it was a good idea. Said he wanted me to get the most for my money. Said he was afraid if the company owners talked to me alone, they might argue me into taking less profit. Didn't want me to talk to him at all if he wasn't around. And you weren't suspicious of him at all, huh? Mr. Fairchild? No. Very nice man. There are a few things he did that made me a little uncertain, but he always explained everything to me. He always had a good reason for everything he did. Nice man, clean cut, well-dressed, beautiful manners. Never take him for anything but a gentleman. You'll see what I mean. Where do you meet him? Yes, ma'am. Just a perfect gentleman. I don't know what to think. I, I can't call him a crook. He just isn't that kind. Well, he took your money, Miss Bear. Yes. What else would you call him? 2.18 p.m. When we got through interviewing the latest victim, Marie Barrett, Bill Lockwood and I drove out to the plastics company on San Fernando Road where we talked to the owner and manager. The story was pretty much the same. The suspect, using the name of George Fairchild, had called on them three weeks before, introducing himself as an investment counselor. He told them he had clients with money to invest in a growing industry such as theirs, and they went for the story. They told us Fairchild had come back two or three times with different persons whom he introduced as his clients. They'd been shown through the plastics plant and given a sales talk. That's about all the company owners could tell us. When we got back to the office, we checked their names through the regular business channels and found out they were reputable businessmen. There was nothing to indicate that they had anything to do with the suspect's bunco operations. 4.30 p.m. Hey, Joe. Yeah, Bill. Girl out here to see us, the one who used to be Preston's secretary, Vivian Castle. Oh, yeah. She say what she wanted? No, seems a little anxious. Uh -huh. Officer, I'm glad I found you in. How are you, Miss Castle? I'm all right. I was going to phone you, but I couldn't remember your number. Lost the card you gave me, so I decided to come down. You remember talking to me, don't you, about Mr. Preston, my old yes, boss? Yes, ma'am. Have you heard from him? Well, no, I haven't, but you remember me telling you about my girlfriend, Norma? Mm -hmm. I mean, the time Mr. Preston took me out, Norma and her boyfriend were with us? Yes, ma'am. And the way Mr. Preston kept making a play for Norma? Well, I saw Norma at lunchtime today, first time in weeks. Mm -hmm. She told me she got a call from Mr. Preston. I told her I'd tell you all about it. She's got a date with him. When? For dinner Friday night. You are listening to Dragnet, authentic stories of your police force in action. Wednesday, January 6th, 4.50 p.m. We called Vivian Castle's girlfriend, Norma Cummings, and then we drove out to talk to her. The Cummings girl told us that Russell Preston had telephoned that morning and made the date with her for Friday night at 7.30. He said they were to have dinner at a nightclub out in the Wilshire District. He also mentioned to her that he was staying in a hotel, but she didn't know the name of the location. We made arrangements for a stakeout at Norma Cummings' apartment. The girl agreed to cooperate with us. Thursday, January 7th, we checked with the personnel at the different restaurants, bars, and nightclubs which Preston and the Cummings girl were to visit. Some of them remembered Preston, but as far as they knew, he hadn't been back. We left our cards with each one of them, and we asked him to contact us if he should return. Just after lunch on Friday, we got a phone call from Norma Cummings. When was that, miss? Uh-huh. Did you find out where he was? I see. Mm-hmm. Will you be there for the rest of the day? All right, fine. Yeah, we'll call you back. Goodbye. Yeah. 
Cummings girl. She's at work. She just had a phone call from Preston. She tried to find out where he was. No go. What do you have to say? That dinner date he had with her tonight? Yeah. He called it off. Later that afternoon, we went out and talked to the Cummings girl. She told us Preston explained on the phone that he had to cancel a date that night because of some business deal that had come up. He told her he'd get in touch with her over the weekend. He didn't. By Thursday of the following week, she still hadn't heard from him. Two days later, on a Saturday afternoon, we got a call from one of the cocktail lounges Preston had visited. The bartender remembered us being in there to inquire about the suspect, and he'd saved our card. He said Preston was there now with another man drinking at the bar. We asked the bartender to try and delay the suspect as long as possible. Then we got in the car and drove to the location. It was too late. The bartender explained that he tried to delay the man that he thought was Preston, but he didn't have much luck. The suspect had left a few minutes after the bartender had called us. He'd been drinking heavily. The man Preston had been with was still there. He was sitting at an old upright piano in the back of the place trying to pick out a tune with one finger. Bill and I went back and talked to him. He gave his name as Fred Sandell. Yeah, that's right. I was drinking with a fellow. Why? What's the matter, officer? Did you ever see the man before? Yeah, once or twice. In here? Uh-uh, no. A place up the street, 780 Club. I had a couple of drinks with him in there. You know his name? Well, what's the angle? You want him for something? Oh, it's just a routine check. We'd like to talk to him. Well, I don't know. I might know his name. Yeah. Well, what's the angle on the thing? You want him for something big? We want to talk to him, that's all. Did he pull a heist, something like that? Hey, he didn't look like that kind of guy. Oh, lousy thing, I never could get that right. How about it? You say you might know the man's name. What was it? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm the one or not to tell you. How do you mean? Well, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. I want to give out names. I, what's the angle on him? You want him for something big or it's what? It's big enough, yeah. Oh. Well, his name's Preston, I think. That's the name he gave me, anyway. I see him around bars in the neighborhood every once in a while. How much do you know about him? Well, not much. I had a few drinks with him now and then, talked a little bit. That's about all. What did you say your name was? Sandell, Fred Sandell. Well, what's the angle on this Preston? We want to get in touch with him. You know where he lives? I don't know. I might. I... You want him for something big, isn't that right? Well, what's the difference? We want him. Well, there could be a lot of difference. I... I mean, what's the angle? If it's if it's important to you and I, I helped you, well, you, you'd probably want to do the right thing, huh? I don't know if I got you right. Well, I mean, if you if you really want the guy, you know. If, if it's important to you and I, I helped you reach him, you'd want to make it square with me, wouldn't you? Huh? And not, not that I'm asked for payoff. You understand that. Yeah, we understand. Where's Preston live? Well, I didn't say I knew where the guy lives. I, I didn't say that. Do you know where he lives? Well, I'm not sure. Am I? I? I don't know if I'll tell you, though. I don't. All right, you want to stand by here, Bill? I better check in. Yeah, fine. Okay. Yeah, John, this is Joe Friday, Bunko. Yeah, Friday. I'd like to check on a suspect, John. He 
It gives the name of Fred Sandell. He's a WMA, about 45, 5 foot 10, 170 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes, ruddy complexion, small scar just below the left ear. Okay. Want me to call you back on that? Yeah, would you please? I'm a Dunkirk, 35016. Right, I'll call you. Thanks. Oh, say, John, could you switch me over to Bunko, please? I'm calling from outside. Yeah, sure. Hang on. Thank you. Would you Can switch? You, uh, switch this call over the Bunko detail, please. Bunko detail, surely. Bunko, Joe Friday, Charlie. Anything doing? Oh, yeah, Joe, quite a bit. That suspect of yours, Russell Preston, mm -hmm. he's been picked up. Yeah? Well, how'd that happen? A radio car picked him up, 8th and South Grand. Drunk charge, I understand. He was pretty well plastered, wandering around in the middle of the street. Had quite a bit of money on him. They brought him into robbery for questioning. Are you sure he's Preston? Yeah, description checks, a couple of sets of identification on him, too. One for Russell Preston, one for George Fairchild. Well, where they got him now? Next door, interrogation room. Ken's scares to talking to him. He's copying out of two of the jobs he pulled. Okay, Charlie, thanks a lot. We'll be right in. All right, Joe. All right, bye. Bill, see you a minute. Yeah. You might as well check in. Preston's been picked up. Huh? When? Probably just after you left this bar. Radio car spotted him, pulled him in. How about that? Yeah. You work two months on a case, and just when we start to get close, somebody else picks the guy up. Yeah, that's right. It's not very exciting, is it? You know, I was just thinking, officer, I don't want to be a hardhead about this thing, you know. I, I mean, if you want this guy pressed, I'd be glad to help you find him. I don't want to be a hardhead. Excuse me a minute. That's all right, John. Right. Bye. Right. Thank you. Well, what do you say, Sergeant? Suppose we sit down and have a drink and talk things over. And I'll I'll show you where I think this Preston hangs out. I mean, if we make the make the right deal, hmm? Well, it's already been made. Do you want to grab your top coat there? We'd like to talk to you downtown. Me? What for? What are you talking about? Grand Theft Auto. They want you, mister. Well, wait a minute. You made a mistake. You, you didn't come in here looking for me. You... You're not even assigned to my case. Well, this ain't fair. Get your code. Let's go. Yeah, but this ain't fair. You come in here looking for Preston. You didn't want me. We do now. Well, what kind of a deal do you call that? You're looking for Preston. You picked me up. Well, what's the angle? There's no angle. Some days you got to settle for less, that's all. Come on, let's go. The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On April 5th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 89, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Russell R. Preston, alias George Fairchild, alias Robert Fairchild, was tried and convicted on three counts of grand theft. Fred Sandell was tried and convicted of grand theft, one count. Both men received sentences as prescribed by law. They are now serving their terms in the state penitentiary, San Quentin, California. Grand theft is punishable by imprisonment for not less than one, nor more than ten years. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. 
Heard tonight were Martin Milner, Marion Richmond, Vic Rodman. Script by Jim Moser. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Fatima Cigarettes has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. It's Counter Spy on NBC. Dragnet from his first season, November 17, 1949, starring Jack Webb, who also created the series. And the cast, uh, you may have heard, included Martin Milner, who ten years later would star as Todd Stiles in TV's Route 66. With his distinctive... Uh, monotone delivery and brassy music stings provided by Walter Schumann. Dragnet was ripe for the satire of Stan Freeberg, who provided a Christmastime classic satire of Dragnet. We're going to round it out tonight with Dark Fantasy. It's next, and you're listening to Skywave Audio Theater. Dark Fantasy started in Oklahoma City on station WKY and quickly drew a large national audience during its short run, barely a year. The writer was Scott Bishop, who a couple of years later would work on The Mysterious Traveler. The debut episode ran on November 14, 1941, and it's called The Man Who Came Back. This is Dark Fantasy. I am the man who came back. Okay, sister. If you didn't, you ain't got nothing to be scared of. Hey, you. Where do you think you're going? I thought I might get a little air, if you don't mind. Well, I do mind. Now, back in the house with you. What's the big idea of you wearing that mask? As you might have observed, my friend, this is a masquerade party. Oh, is it now? Well, according to Emily Post, it's masks off at midnight. We got this call to come out here just as the clock in Washington Circle was striking the hour. The call was placed by a most hysterical woman. And there is nothing you can do for the man in there, I assure you. Stop changing the subject. What I want to know is, why ain't you unmasked like the others? I prefer, sir, to wear my mask. Take it off, Don Juan. I want to look at your mug. 
It might be better, my friend, if you didn't see my mug. Now look here, Zorro. Perhaps while we are waiting, I might tell you a story. Yeah? What is this? Bedtime at Grandma's? The only story I'm interested in is what happened here tonight. Exactly. Eh? I said exactly. Perhaps I can tell you the story. All right, then, my fine, mysterious friend. Give. Well, you see, it's quite a long story. It really all began three... Yes, at least three years ago. I remember that evening quite well. I let myself into Granger's apartment. It was a golden key I used. A bright golden key. And there was no one there when I arrived. So I closed the door and waited. Grange, imagine seeing me here. Blake, oh, I say, you startled me. Did I now? I dare say, had I been someone else, you wouldn't have been at all startled. Uh, incidentally, old man, how did you get in here? I suppose it would be quite facetious of me to say that I came in the same way you did. Oh, I say, a, a new piano. Do you mind? Uh, uh, no, not at all. Go right ahead, help yourself. Uh, have a drink? No, thanks. You'd better have one, though. Hmm? Oh, yes. Uh, I say, Blake, what's that you're playing? You've heard it before, Grange. Have I? I don't recall. You have a short memory. I usually remember pretty well. Well, when you choose to, you do, yes. What do you mean by that? My wife has played that tune for you every night this week and last and the week before that. You see, I happen to know. Oh, I see. Well, I'm glad you haven't the audacity to deny it. No. No, I don't deny it. Your wife has been here. Often. As often as she possibly could. But I assure you, she came of her own desire. And as a result of your oily persuasion. I might agree, Blake, that she is easily persuaded. And, of course, my uh, curiosity prompts me to ask how you finally learned the truth. I accidentally found the key to your apartment here. It was in Sylvia's purse. A golden key. With your initials engraved on one side, hers on the other. Why, I thought that a rather handsome touch. Don't you agree? I've brought the key back to you. <laughs> how gallant of you, old fellow. I'm serious. Sylvia will never come here again. Are you positive of that? Quite. For I shall ask her not to. You seem to believe she'll obey you. She will. And I ask you now, Grange, as a gentleman, kindly refrain from inviting her here again. In uh, other words, hands off. Is that it? I'm glad I make myself quite plain. Why, you fool. You dull, stupid fool. What right have you to demand anything of Sylvia? 
Do you think for a moment, night after night, twiddling her thumbs while you're away from home? I admit I've been busy this past year, but another six months... Ah, uh, you've no one to blame for Sylvia's being here but yourself. Here she's found what you've denied her, Blake. And I doubt very much if she'll give it up. Why, you swine, if you think for a moment... Oh. Well, I forgot you carried a gun. But if you'd care to put it away... <laughs> Skip the heroics, Blake. You know, I think I've suddenly thought of a solution to all this. The only solution is for you to leave Sylvia alone. Oh, no. No, you're quite mistaken. This is the solution. Here in my hand. Indeed, I rather like the idea. Besides, with you out of the way, Sylvia need have no more qualms. Why, you low yellow rat. That's it, Blake. Come closer. Threaten me. Make me do it. Make me do it, Blake. You think killing me is a way out, Grange? You're very badly mistaken. It's the only way out. If you kill me, Grange, I'll come back and avenge myself. One shot and that'd be all. I can prove self-defense. Sylvia will help. She'll swear you came here and tried to kill me. I'll come back, Grange. Just one shot directly between the eyes. I'll haunt you, Grange, because by God in heaven, I'll come back. It's a perfect scheme, yes. I like I'll it. I'll pierce the veil, Grange, because <laughs> I'll come back if I have to fight all the demons of hell to do it. <laughs> Prepare, Blake. This is a chance of a lifetime. It's the way out. Yes, it's the way out. Grange! <laughs> the judgment of this court that the defendant, Keith Grange, did shoot and kill the deceased Philip Blake on the night of April 16th, and that in so doing, he acted in a line of self-defense. The court therefore decrees that Keith Grange shall not be held to account for this unfortunate incident. I suppose there's nothing to worry about now. Not the slightest thing. I told you from the very beginning, Sylvia, that I acted rightly in doing what I did. Oh, I still can't resign myself to it. But you must. It's all over. Philip is dead. Now we can be together as much as we please. Keith, suppose you and I should have a misunderstanding. Suppose I should become angry sometime. So angry I... I might tell the truth to the authorities. 
Uh, that, my dear, would be most unfortunate. But it's a possibility, and by no means should we overlook possibilities. Uh, so allow me to remind you, Sylvia, my dear girl, that you're hiding the true facts of the matter of the coroner's investigation automatically makes you an accomplice. Oh, I see. But why are we talking like this, darling? We'll both feel better after we've had a little rest. Oh, of course we will, dear. Kiss me goodnight, darling. I'm going home. I'll take you. Oh, no. No, I'd rather go alone tonight if you don't mind. As you wish, my dear. Good night. Good night, darling. Sweet. Uh, will you call me in the morning? Yes, of course I will. Good night, then. Good night, darling. Pleasant dreams. That's strange. Very strange. Just a moment ago, there were only Sylvia and I here. Now she's gone. Yet I feel that I'm not alone. You're not alone, Grange. What? What was that? I thought I heard a voice. It was my voice. Who, who are you? Where are you? I told you I'd come back. No. No, it's just my imagination. Is it your imagination, Grange? Yes. Yes, of course. I warned you. I warned you. Remember? Come out. Come out in the open. Come out, I say. Do you hear me? Come out. Your gun is useless against me now, Grange. What do you want? Tell me, what do you want? Oh, not now. The time isn't right now. But I'll be back. Watch for me and wait. Watch and wait. For I'll come back, Rain. I'll come back. <laughs> I'm sure of it. It was no one. No one at all. I just imagined it, that's all. Yes, just my imagination. Sylvia, dear. You look so tired. Here, perhaps this will wake you up. present for you. A present? Yes. Something I picked up today. I thought you'd like it. How sweet of you, darling. Uh, I think I can guess just by looking at the box. It's, um... It's a ring. Oh, aren't you clever. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, open it. All right, darling, but don't hurry me. Oh. Miss Sylvia. That isn't the ring I bought for you. Keith, look at this ring. The initials. P.B. Keith, this... This is his ring. Sylvia, what are you saying? It's his ring. I gave it to him. But Sylvia... Keith, I swear to you, Philip Blake was buried with that ring on his finger.
Ted? Ted, mister? Yes, please. Uh, do you mind coming around to the other side, please, mister? That door's busted and you can't get it open. Oh, very well. Sorry to ask that of you, but they ain't had time to get the other door fixed. Where to, friend? Uh, oh, uh, uh, Huntington Arms Hotel, please. Right. Excellent. Huh? That's where I'm going. Oh. Oh, you startled me. I didn't know there was anyone in this cab. It's so dark tonight. Yes, isn't it? I see. I don't seem to feel anyone in the seat here beside me. Strange. You certainly bumped me hard enough when you crawled in here. Bumped you? I beg your pardon, sir, but I... Never mind, Grange. Never mind. You know me? I'm surprised that you don't know me. Why, yes. Your voice sounds familiar. Good Lord. Philip Blake. Do you mind riding with me? I... Blake. You're supposed to be dead. You're supposed to be buried. I am dead, Grange. I am buried. Tabby! Tabby, stop this cab! Right, sir. Now, let me out of here. Let me out. What's the matter, Governor? Hey, you hadn't ought to jump out of a moving car like that. What in the name of heaven is in the back of that cab? Why, nothing, Governor. Here. See? I'll turn on the light. There. See? But there was somebody in there with me. Oh, now, mister, they couldn't have been. Look for yourself. The seat's empty there. You just jumped out on this side of the cab. The other door won't open. <laughs> no, brother, there wasn't nobody in that seat with you. Must have been your imagination. This is Sylvia. I just wanted to remind you about the masquerade ball at Keith's new home tonight. You'll be there? Fine. Now remember, masks and costumes for everybody. All right, dear. Now be sure to come in costume, won't you, Dorothy? Yes. And heavily masked, my dear. Yes, at Keith's new place. Oh, darling, wait till you see the place. It's really a mansion. <laughs> Honestly, it's huge. Mr. Grange, I believe. Sylvia, darling. <laughs> so you've penetrated my disguise. Silly. I heard you order it from the costumers yesterday. <laughs> Darling, the music will start soon. Is the first dance ours? Sylvia, my dear, every dance is ours tonight. <laughs> Are you happy I bought this place? Oh, it's lovely. Absolutely lovely, Keith. Darling, what's the matter? That man in black. I've been watching him all evening. He's been watching me. Do you know who he is? No. He just stands and stares at me. 
Everywhere I go, he's always just a short distance away. Look, Keith. He's going into your study. Well, he hasn't any business in there. That's strange. I locked that door this evening so the guest wouldn't go into your study and disturb things. Well, he just walked right in. And, dear, I'll go see who he is and what he wants. You mingle with the guests and I'll join you later. Very well, dear. But don't be long. I'll be waiting for you. All right, Sylvia. Yeah. It's odd. This door is locked. Found it. Where's the light switch? There. No. No, it can't be. That piano. Someone's playing, and yet there's no one seated there. The keys moving up and down, playing the music. But there are no hands on them. That melody. It's the melody he played the night I killed him. He's playing it now. And yet he's not there. I'm here, Grange. I'm here. Play. Look closer, Grange. Here I am. You see? Yes. I see you now. I brought you a little gift for your masquerade party. What? You'll find it lying on your desk. Turn around and see for yourself. That's right. There. You see? A, a gun. It's the one you killed me with. Don't you recognize it? Where did you get that gun? I found it, Grange, and I've brought it back to you. I put one shell in its chamber. Just one, Grange. But that is enough. What are you trying to... Gone. He's gone. Lord, am I mad? Was I dreaming? No. No, the gun is here. It is my gun. One cartridge, he said. Only one. One cartridge. Yes. Yes, it's the only way left. He knew it was the only way. Now he's left me to take it. All right, Blake. You can have your revenge. You can have it. And you are right. It is the only way. Hmm. So he shot himself, eh? The evidence in there will indicate that he did, yes. Say, that's quite a yarn you spun, Zorro. It is nothing but the truth. Come on now, come on, my friend. Let's take off your mask and have a look at you. One moment. Keith Grange 
shot Philip Blake squarely between the eyes. Yeah? So what? That doesn't make a very pretty sight. Well, I don't see what that's got to do with... Uh, here comes the captain. He'll take that mask off you. Captain Sullivan, come here a minute, will you? Yes, Casey, what is it? Well, there's a mug here that won't take off his mask. He's been spinning me the most fantastic yarn ever heard in all my... Uh, 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 where'd he go? Huh? Where'd who go? Say, did you let somebody get out of this house, Casey? Uh, no, 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 Sir Cap. No, I didn't. But he was, he was standing here just a minute ago. He wouldn't take off his mask. He told me the darndest story about a murdered man coming back from the grave. Casey, <laughs> have you been near the punch bowl? Well, there's no one here now. Wait a minute. What's this stain here on the floor? Blood. A little pool of it. There on the floor. Right in the exact spot where the man in black was standing. Came Back, an original tale of dark fantasy by Scott Bishop. Ben Morris was Keith Grange. Eleanor Naylor Corrin was Herda Sylvia. Fred Wayne took the part of Casey. Muir Height was Captain Sullivan. Murillo Schofield, the cab driver. And Eugene Francis was the man who came back. Ladies and gentlemen, every Friday night at this time, the National, Broadcap- the National Broadcasting Company will bring you dark fantasy, tales of the weird, Adventures of the Supernatural, created for you by Scott Bishop. Listen one week from tonight for the breathtaking story of the tombs of ancient China, the soul of Shanghai Wan. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Keith Grange, slayer of Philip Beck, finagled an acquittal on the grounds of self-defense, but... uh, There was a little wrinkle in his plan. A restless victim. And the truth, of course. That was the debut episode of Dark Fantasy. The Man Who Came Back. It came from November 14, 1941. And that piano piece, by the way, was the Waltz in A-flat by Brahms. And that's it for tonight. I'm Norman Gilliland. Thanks for joining me. I hope you can be with me next week for more from Skywave Audio Theatre.